Oh, sorry I'm late. I think it's my first time. Bad weather t- over there? No. Why are you late? Why am I late? Candidly, candidly, I wanted to hang out at the house because everybody was a little sad today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes you have days where people are sad. Except the cat. The cat looks happy all the time. You got to see this cat. Oh, you got to see her. Oh, she's sending some pictures. She's, uh, we've, I didn't tell you about the trip to the vet. Did I tell you about the trip to the vet? I don't think so. <sighs> Man, the saga continues. As Wu-Tang says, uh, so we got this cat. You know, we got sold a bill of goods on the age of this cat. We got sold. <laughs> wait, wait, no, wait a second. How, did you count the rings? How do you know? You have to cut it in half, right? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Carbon dating? Mm-hmm. That's the only true way. Everything else is an estimate. So we got this cat, and it's it's not a rescue. I mean, it had an okay home, but it was getting beat up by another cat. So we adopted it. And, they, and, and the, the, the guesstimation from the previous cat companions was that the cat was, quote-unquote, six to eight years old. <laughs> You've seen this cat. Does yep. that cat look six to you? Doesn't look like a cat to me. <laughs> looks like something a cat might have coughed up. I wish I could refute that. So now you're thinking what? The cat is what? 20, 25 years old? The cat's at least nine, according to medical professionals. Well, six to eight, nine. Come on. That's, no that's, one that's an old. extra third of life. Isn't that right? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, uh, especially with pets, a lot of people lose track of or never knew when they were born, and they give a reasonable estimate. You think it's like one year off? Oh, fine, whatever. This cat could live for nine more miserable years. It's a, it's a, it's a pitiful, pitiful creature. Uh, where do I begin? I don't know if we should get into this. But, uh, you know, my part of my reluctance all along has been that I feel like almost as much as a kid, and people have kids all the time, whatever, right? But, you know, it's a, it's a commitment. Like, setting aside the amount of time this cat will, will live and the, and the consequent number of things you'll have to change and do or not do as a result. Don't you agree? It's, it's kind of a big commitment. I do agree. Yeah. I mean, I, t- I take it very seriously. Uh, not least because I am aware that in this new age of pet companionship, you're expected to do medical things for your animal. It used to be there was, there was <laughs> two kinds of prognoses in the world of pets. which is Healthy every- and kill it. Yeah. There's two. Yeah. Either everything's copacetic or the animal is now living on a quote-unquote farm. That's what you did. I mean, flea collar, sure, we'll get you, we'll go buy you a hearts. We'll get you some kibble. You, you can chew on these chicken bones, <laughs> whatever. Don't let your dog have chicken bones. But, you know, that, for a long time, that's what you did. And uh, then there was this buy period where I was not involved in the pet industry. And now I wake up today, and I mean, I, I, you hear the, the stories. You know, you hear about people who get surgery for their animals. Did you ever, as a child, or, like, were you ever aware of animal surgeries beyond, like, a broken limb? I think I was. I think I was actually very familiar with this. I had a lot of people who had cats that had expensive medical procedures as a kid, because that's just kind of like a Long Island thing to do. And, in fact, uh, the dog that I owned as an adult had surgeries. Uh, Okay, okay, but I'm just saying, like, over, like, 25, 30 years, a lot's changed in all yeah. those ways. So, you know, I just wanted my family to be ready for that and to say, like, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm a hero and they're idiots, and I don't mean it to sound that way, but I've been just trying to say it's more than just, like, a fun thing we have. This is not like a Lego set. You don't, you don't like, get, you know, 10% into Darth Vader and then throw it back in the box. Like, this is a commitment. You've got to, like, do this thing. Uh, it's not like The Walking Dead. So, you know, I was kind of wincing and 
preparing for that blow and ready to say, like, okay, this is going to be, no matter what happens in the first year, this is probably going to be like a four-figure animal. Right? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So we got the cat. Cat seemed mostly fine. The cat seemed really deaf. The cat was nervous, <laughs> which is what performance characteristic of a cat. The cat mostly lived under the bed, but the cat was very deaf and nervous, and and obviously also a hideous freak, as you've noted. But um, so we finally took it to the vet a couple of weeks ago, and boy, yeah. So they ran the full <laughs> they ran the full blood set. They. Uh, it turns out that uh, it wasn't just as our pet groomer said. She didn't just merely have gunk in her ears. I'm very reluctant to say this. Um, <laughs> she was overrun with the worst case of ear mites this medical yeah. professional has ever seen. I'm going to say, like, you, you get, I figured, I mean, from all the books you get from the library about the cats and the ear mites and the whole, and like the glands and everything, you didn't, you didn't take a look see yourself or no? Well, we saw, okay, so here, but the thing is, we had her for a couple months and we just hadn't taken her into the vet. Understand, I don't mean to throw the previous family under the bus. I'm honestly not trying to do that. I would not want it to get back to them that I'm trying to, I'm bad mouthing them because I don't mean it to. But, comma, having said that, in January, they took the goddamn cat to the vet, handed over the six year old cat to us with a quote unquote clean bill of health. Everything's fine. She's been groomed. She's been to the vet and well, everything she, is okay. She got the ear mites under your bed. Uh huh. <laughs> Tell you what, buddy. Tell you what, buddy. You do not get ear mites like this cat had under a bed in a month. She's just a fur sack filled with ear mites. <laughs> I should send you some recent pictures. She's she's really, really something. All right. So so that's so you get the ear mites. That's a that's a treatable condition. That's one. She's got the ear mites. Then there was concern that she had things that might be ringworm. Yay, ringworm. She might have ringworm because mm-hmm. she was around outside animals, even though yep. she is primarily an inside animal. Guess what? Your cat might have ringworm. The blood work comes back on our cat that we adopted, and everything is mostly fine, except it appears she might have a heart condition. <laughs> <laughs> but but doc, Dr. Putar says, don't worry, it's, <laughs> it's probably treatable. <laughs> to which I raise the world's tiniest little cat flag and go, yay? <laughs> Open heart cat surgery is very affordable <laughs> these days. We have installment plans, and uh, it'll offer to uh, garnish your wages. It's it's uh, they really work with you. It's like it's like a payday loan, for, except for an animal that you didn't really want. Um, no, it's good. That John Oliver should do a very brave segment on uh, on the cat industry. Well, so, well, well, here's a question. So, during this vet visit, yeah, is your daughter in the room? No, she's at school, and my wife All and right. I w- went in together um to go in this guy this guy's good we have a cat clinic like literally you can see it from our window don't be creepy it's very close to our house and these people are good they care a lot about cats so anyway i don't want to drag this out but um so ear mites are a situation you gotta deal with the ear mites they did the blood work uh they got to do tests because because the cat might have ringworm uh what was the other one um oh oh, oh her teeth her teeth are a mess <laughs> And as the, I don't know how much you've listened to other programs, but the cat groomer lady, the extremely colorful gal who's our pet groomer, basically sat me down for like 20 minutes after the first grooming and like, like read me the riot act on this cat that I had just gotten. She said the ears, the ears are a problem for real. We got to dig those out. And then she said the teeth, she's got teeth. She's got at least one tooth that probably has to be pulled. She's got big cat tooth problems. She said, FYI, you're going to need to go and do a full cleaning. 
And so I says to her, I says, a full cleaning? What, what's that? You go in and get the cat's teeth. She says, no, 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 no. The cat's going to be in there all day. They sedate the cat. It's about, yeah. it's about, it's about $700 to get the cat's teeth clean yeah, all the way. In general, pets don't like you to clean their teeth, so they all have to be put under. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's mostly where it stands. And so now we are in the, uh, the cat healthcare business. So we got, we got, uh, so they cleaned out her ears. They only charged 35 bucks for that, which I thought was pretty amazing. They sat there and they, they cleaned the shit out of her ears. That's because they can, they can resell that stuff. Absolutely. On the, on the cat black market, the black cat Mm -hmm. market. And so, so, uh, so that was good. They, They cleaned her out. She was not loving this. Um, she was really skittish, but she was, she was very brave. And so, uh, so they give her cat drops in the office. They give us cat drops to take home. They give us a thing where they got to give her a drop. I think it's called revolution. They gave her revolution. And they give her that on the back of the neck and the paws. And so there's lots of treatments there. And now we are in a twice daily with our rescue cat that we got, our six-year-old quote-unquote cat, quote-unquote. We now are in a twice-a-day health regimen with the cat where the cat must be captured. And the cat knows there's ear medicine coming. The cat knows twice a day is going to be the ear medicine. And she's not loving it. So you get the cat, you put the cat on a blanket. Now, our, our basically, our dining room has now turned into a, a cat medical staging area. There's nothing in there but cat dealing with supplies. It's medical staging area slash wrestling ring. <laughs> it's true. Someone, someone wrestles the cat to the ground and subdues it on top of the blanket. Get then the so, lead. Get the collar. Else, Takes a large sack and empties it out, spreading thumbtacks all around. <laughs> so you pin her down. And, you know, she weighs um, six pounds. She's very slight. Mm-hmm. And so you, you hold her down and you squeeze drops into her ear and then you gently massage below her ear. I bet, to get I bet she loves that. She loves it. It's so sweet. You can just see how happy she is. And uh, with her hissing through her rotten teeth. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's like Jack Sparrow. So she... Um, so yeah, we do that, and then we get a hot washcloth, and we wash our eyes. Uh, we, uh, John Sarkusa, I went, on, I went on to Amazon, and I bought a diffuser that you plug into a light plug, uh, and that diffuses a pheromone scent that may or may not make the cat calm. <laughs> so now we have a cat. What do you call it? This is like the clockwork orange Lud- Lud- uh, Ludovic- name ludovico technique that's right this is what you're doing to cat <laughs> bump 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 user so that's the thing we do twice a day but there have been many many wonderful changes the cat looks much <laughs> better i'll send you some photos she looks a lot better she's she's much more bright-eyed and as of last week she did something uh unbelievable which is that I was laying in bed, as I do, and I hear like a, a light thunk, and I turn, and the cat is in the bed, and she's staring at me, and her, her face goes, what? And she's like, uh, what? And I'm like, I'm like, cat, dude, you never get in the bed. What is this? You've never been on the bed. And now she's on the bed all the time, which is very sweet. She looks a lot better. Her eyes are a lot better. We've got all kinds of medicines for that. We got a, we got a new kind of a shampoo we can rub on her. So you remember the episode of The Simpsons where Bart goes to the doctor, and he gets the glasses, and he gets the stuff for his hair and the corrective shoes? Mm-hmm. So it's basically that. At the end of the thing, the cat is matted. She's sad. She's having her ears <laughs> massaged. And she just she just slunks away under the bed like she's, you know, running out of Mos Eisley. Spends the rest of the day glaring at you. Yeah, but she's really warmed up a lot. Basically, you know, I have my time at night when I, when I go out and watch my stories on TV. The family has gone to read Harry Potter. The second my daughter's door closes, poof, the cat comes in the room, and then she headbutts me for three hours. 
<laughs> it's very sweet. So it's get a some of that on film. See, but you can't put that stuff up. You put that on the internet, and then people make comments. What? The cat's headbutting you? It's sweet. You got you, you to record that for posterity. It's it's really it is super sweet. But then you know, oh, here's a good one for you. I'll send you this one. Um, you know, but if you put up pictures, people will watch them. They'll look at the photos, and and, and they will say things and make remarks. Look at that face. Do you see that sweet, precious angel? Doesn't she look better? How do you think you sent this to me? Oh, as in the robot in the um, iMessages. Mm, nope. <clears throat> Wrong window. You just sent someone else cat picture. All right. So anyway, it's a journey, but you know, I, I well, my my wife and I came out of the okay okay. I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put my cards on the table. We came out of the cat clinic, and I said, you know what. The cat doesn't have AIDS because apparently there's a thing called cat AIDS. Yes, feline AIDS, yes. Yeah. So in the streets, the street name is cat AIDS. The cat doesn't <laughs> appear to have cat AIDS. And I was like, that's really good. But we're walking down the street. We get to the corner. We're waiting across the street. And I, I remember very distinctly, I said to my wife, I said, you know, you know, we probably need to have the talk about the boundaries on this. Because I, I know it seems very premature to have the talk, but I think we need to have an orders of magnitude idea in our head about money as regards cat things. I mean, this is a very John Syracuse thing to say. If you get something in your life that you have to deal with, there's a very, very small chance that you'll spend nothing on it. And there's a relatively small chance you'll spend $100 million on it. This is sort of like you and, uh, and uh, the ZFS or whatever, right? Like, it's not a question of if the file system will change. It's a question of when it will change, right? The iTunes store will not always be the way it is. I, I listen to your other programs. Same thing here. There is a number somewhere within an order or two of magnitude one hopes there's a number somewhere between zero and a hundred million about our budget zero is not practical and you know what turns out a hundred million is not practical is there an orders of magnitude number that we're willing to go up to cumulatively right and so i've started that conversation so i mean i feel like i feel like it's not it's not overly onerous or difficult to be in the four-figure range. I'm going to have a lot of concern when this becomes a five-figure cat. Per year or all time? See, it's sort of like John and the GMC RV. Have you heard John talk about the RV? And I guess there's an old saw in the GMC RV community, which is like you're going to spend, no matter what you spend Mm -hmm. on your GMC RV, it will cost you $25,000 in the first year. So you can buy a $22,000 GMC RV and spend $3,000 probably. Or you could be, get a real bargain for a thousand, but that's going to cost you like twenty four grand. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, in all that, the, the, in all that equation, uh, the bottom line is at the end of it all, you have a GMC RV. So here with the cat, it's like yeah. okay, there's a number. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, and yeah. and and it, the the uh, the input of that number, the output is you have this cat, and hopefully, the reward of having this cat justifies whatever investment it is. If it's a one dollar cat and you like it one dollars worth, good deal. If you've mm-hmm. loved this cat more than life itself and you pay 20 grand, good deal, right? So you feel like that equation has to balance, and that's kind of the conversation you're having here. It's not just how much are we willing to spend on an, an abstract cat. Now you've got the actual cat. How much are we willing to spend on this cat? Yeah. And you're not really spending it on the cat. You're spending it on how much your daughter likes the cat, and it's just this very complicated thing. 
Yes, and it's not unlike the sort of – the best example I can think of when you're talking about the sort of the well, – let's call it the sunk cost fallacy. A great example of setting aside a rock is when you're thinking about a car that you've got, right? And the old, the old example being if you've got a car that you spent you know, three dollars $5,000 on, something like that, three dollars to $5,000, $7,000, whatever, and you've had it for a few years, it doesn't really owe you too much as a vehicle at that point. But you've got to replace the air conditioning. And you say, okay, I replaced the air conditioning. I spent $800 or whatever that costs for air conditioning. But then like six months later, you see where I'm going with this. Six months later, you got to replace the clutch or the timing belt or God forbid the engine. And like, you know, that's the problem with sunk cost fallacy is you feel like I'm not making this decision based upon what this thing is actually worth. I'm spending it based upon what I've already invested that I can't get back. Yeah, then you even using that analogy, you get into trouble of like, well, but a cat's not a possession, it's another living thing, and uh, the the calculus isn't quite the same, and you're not looking to get resale value uh, on the cat, and uh, it's complicated. Say the cat, the cat's not a car. uh, Well, it's a possession in some ways, in that you own the cat, but on the other hand, it's also a living thing, and the car is not. uh, So it gets really complicated. It's it's usually, believe it or not, I think it's actually simpler if you really, really, really love your pet. Because then you find it easier to spend what you might have thought before obscene amounts of money on it. Because you're like, why Why wouldn't I spend this money? To not spend this money is ludicrous. This this animal, you know, is an integral part of my life and I, and I never want to see it go. And of course I'll pay thousands. And that's why people do pay thousands. That, in some ways, is a simpler calculus that I think people are more comfortable with than the less comfortable thing where you have an animal that lives in the same house with you it's not bad you kind of like it but on the other hand if it wandered away and never came back you'd be like oh Hmm. yeah and then you have to then people feel bad about themselves then because they're like is am i so mercenary is it does does life is life only meaningful insofar as uh you know it entertains or comforts me like what is your responsibility as the uh as the owner of another living thing and that's where this cat's gonna run into trouble with me is is that i'm actually feeling absurdly rational about this thing which is like and here's here's how that's good and bad for her which is that i went into this fair with a fairly cool-eyed idea that this thing whatever its performance characteristics for my family was going to be something that i had to be a dad about that we've got to take care of this it's gonna it's gonna take effort and and money and that sort of like you going to disney world there's a certain point where you've got to go okay once we cross over this line we're in crazy town, and we're just okay with that. We know that stuff is going to cost way more than it should, but obviously we can't say that it can cost everything. We can't clean out our bank bank account for a week at Disney World. So in this case, I'm actually very rational about it, of saying like I'm fully prepared to like have to blow some cash on this cat, but at the same time, I also want to because once that emotion comes along, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking again of, of people you. Uh, I mean, it's one thing, like, if grandma has the cancer, and you get rid of the cancer, and then it comes back, you say, well, grandma's probably worth the effort, plus she's got some insurance, let's go ahead and give that a throw. Hopefully, grandma also has some agency and can decide, like, that's, the cat is not making these decisions yourself. The cat doesn't have, like, a DNR. You're not having a conversation with the cat. Are you familiar, are you familiar with toxoplasmosis at all, John? Yeah, the brain parasites that Uh keep pregnant ladies away from cat poop. Yeah. Well, I'm actually deliberately introducing pheromones into the house at this point. (laughs) So... Yeah, you, you already have the brain. I'm assuming the brain parasites are already. That that ship is sailed. That's the beauty part. It's, I don't think you can even know. You can, that's can't right. Even well, know. of course you don't know. The brain parasites prevent you from knowing. 
this might get to our topic tonight. So anyway, I, I love the cat. We, 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 but I, the thing is, it shouldn't matter whether I love the cat. Like, that's the thing. And that's the dad part. It's like, hopefully you love your kid. But the thing is, it doesn't matter whether you love your kid. You do it because that's your job, right? And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to be this way with the cat. It does not hurt that, I, that she is actually empirically a sweet, precious angel. And I would prefer that she live. So, you know, it's just open heart cat surgery. I don't know. But the doctor says, you know, we could try giving her some medicine and, and see how it goes. Also, you know, I got to tell you, uh, she's a pleasure to clean up after. She's a real dry pooper. And uh, she's very easy <laughs> to deal with. Very, very, I mean, basically you get like, you get like a slightly like, maybe like a, a Tootsie Roll that's been a little bit humidified. You deal with that. You, you put it in the, in the genie and you're done. You get some uh, diet adjustments to get this cat to have healthier poop. Oh, she's eating nothing but dry. We're not giving her any of that canned crap. We give her high quality, what's it called? Run of the mill, king of the woods, uh, lord of the timbers. It's some kind of a nice dry cat food. And I, I, uh, I give her fresh food and water twice a day, and I clean out the bowl. A lot of people don't clean out the bowl, John. I, I, I clean out the bowl. Got to clean the bowl. People don't clean the bowl. The thing is, here's the thing. You go and you say, oh, I'm going to keep putting water. No, I sound like Dan. But like, you get your cat's bowl. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever thrown the water out of your cat's bowl and then run your finger around inside? Well, you got you got to clean the bowl. Everyone knows this. I mean, it's it's got like it, it it's like it's like uh, it's like it's like touching the joystick on an asteroids machine in 1983. Yeah, it's animals, disgusting. Animals backwash. She backwashes. There's there's spittle in hair. <laughs> also, she started sneezing a lot, um, which is which is sweet. She she sneezed on me to wake me up this morning. Have you have you cooked your cat anything yet? Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crossing a line too. Well, no, it was more of an experiment. It was a thought experiment because because one night I'm out there watching my stories after the family's gone to sleep, and I'm enjoying a little bit of Stouffer's macaroni and cheese, which is <laughs> which is a snack I'll have once a month. Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's good and good for you too. <laughs> Stouffer's mac and cheese. That is the apex macaroni and cheese meal. You think there's a better macaroni and cheese than Stouffer's? I haven't had Stouffer's in a long time. I mean, oh, I, everyone, everyone, everyone holds up, always holds, holds up the, the Kraft Dinner, which is fine oh, for what it on. is. Stouffer's, Stouffer's, I feel like, should be a step up, but I... Hold up is what? Like, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in, like, the Batman jail, yeah, that's great. It's a staple. <laughs> it's a staple. Well, so are literal staples. It's like peanut butter and jelly. But oh, anyway, I haven't oh, had Stouffer's man. in years, so I can't say. I don't have any good memory of what that's like. Oh, it's outstanding. You take the plastic off the top, you heat it for eight minutes. We have, we have an excellent microwave. And then you, uh, you start around, and then you have to get another three minutes. It's perfect. You can add mm. kielbasa to that, a little bit of secret salt. Wait, it's wait, really is, good. Is, is all, this is only microwave? I, I got to say, you cook, cook it on the stovetop, even with the powdered stuff. I got to put What are you talking about? Higher. I'm talking about Stouffer's Frozen. Stouffer's Frozen. Yeah, but microwave? No. No. You wouldn't microwave a frozen? Uh, what would you do? Did you bake it? I feel like you have to cook the pasta in boiling water. and then They already cooked it. It's frozen now. It. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it seems. Also, our oven's still broken. The, um, <laughs> the, but, the, you know, the point of it is I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm, my family's gone to bed. And I'm enjoying my stories. And the cat's there. This is around the beginning of the headbutting era. And so I'm just sitting there. And then I, I, I uh, hear this. And I look down. And, and the cat is going hammer and tongs on some mac and cheese. It's the only people food I've ever seen her eat. I just use the phrase people food. She, um, <laughs> but she appears to be really enjoying this macaroni and cheese. I say, mm-hmm, mental note, good treat for the cat, right? I mean, it's not ibuprofen wait, or something, wait, wait, right? Wait. Ment- mental note, good treat. For, like, I feel that you have to clear sort of like what you're feeding your cat with, with some sort of authority on what cats are able to digest. 
it is in the true sense of the word a treat. Not a treat in the sense of which of the three desserts my daughter has tonight treat, but a treat in the sense of, hey, once in a while, maybe you get a spoonful of macaroni and cheese. All right. Well, you still want to look that up to make sure like, oh, no, macaroni and cheese is toxic to cats and it can kill them. Like, I don't know. Oh, I know. I know. Okay. I know three things, mostly from cartoons. I know. (laughs) I know that I know that cats like dairy. I think they're not supposed to drink milk. Is that is that true? Is that a turns out? It, that's that that's either a turns out or a double turns out. Oh, so you got to look, look that one up. Yeah, cats. Okay. Should you feed your cat milk? Just Google that. I'm My sure. penultimate cat uh, was a giant fan of spaghetti. My cat liked almost nothing more than salted spaghetti. This is like intestines. Speaking of people food, you know, uh, and right. cat food. You know, yeah. it's cat food. Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah. Don't think I haven't thought about it, buddy. <laughs> You're going to go back to Dr. Katz again. Uh. <laughs> uh, I had that clip. I think I still have clip, that clip in my Dropbox. We've talked about it before. I love it so much. Um, Dom Herrera? I don't even remember. System of man, my main man sister. So one day, uh, after my family gone to bed, I'm out uh, in, the, in the family room watching my stories, and I think maybe I should get a treat for the cat. And I, you know what? Let's be honest. I could use a little bit of Stouffer's macaroni and cheese. So I go ahead and I, I, I bust a mac and cheese. I get a ramekin, because I'm very into ramekins. I get her a tiny ramekin, one of those maybe three-inch in diameter uh, ramekins, and I give her two spoonfuls of macaroni and cheese. Can you guess what happened? Didn't touch it. Not interested. <laughs> Sat there overnight. And the, so I, I, made, I, I had to go to the effort of making food for my cat, and then I had the indignity of her ignoring it so that I got to wake up the next day, and now it's just making dishes for me. She might need uh, heart medications. So that's the thing we do now. So yeah, things are pretty good with the cat. Did you get the picture? I did. I got, I got it in two places. It finally came through. Doesn't she look a little better? A lot of eye boogers there. Uh, I got a lot of eye boogers uh, shading out onto the whisker area. We clean her every night. Now, apparently there's also drops. So here's, here's the nice thing about being a cat person is you get advice. Uh, so first of all, we got tons of advice about these drops that you can get for your cat. When I mentioned that we got some, got tons of advice about drops for your cat, you, get, you know what I got then? Tons of links to an FDA warning about cat drops. Yeah, and also those drops that like you put it between the shoulder blades. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm suspicious of those. Because that's a whole system type situation. Yeah, because like my, my dog, we gave him the drops between the shoulder blades for fleas and ticks. And eventually, a gigantic, huge growth formed exactly where we put the drops. Trust your mechanic, am I right? I mean, is it related? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's exactly where... He had lumps on other spots of his body, too, but the biggest one and the gnarliest one and the weirdest looking one was right where we put the drops. Oh, come on. Not great. That could be a triple turns out. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you by MailRoute. You can learn more about MailRoute right now by visiting MailRoute.net slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. Team, you know how this works. IT departments are expected to do more but with less money in 2016. And this includes the really important stuff, stuff like stopping spam and virus attacks. On top of it all, end-of-life announcements for trusted hardware and software. Ah. It often makes these decisions even more difficult. First, Postini went away. Now, MX Logic. Who can you trust to do the job well and to stick around? I got an answer for you. I'm talking about MailRoute. MailRoute will protect your email and your hardware against spam, viruses, and other attacks. There's no hardware or software to install. If you own your domain, hey, that's all you need to use MailRoute. 
MailRoute's team has focused exclusively on email protection since 1997. Their interface is easy to use and it's loaded with admin tools, including an API, and it is all designed to make your life spam-free. MailRoute has it all. It supports LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. And right now, MailRoute is offering price matching for McAfee and MX Logic customers. So stop spam today with your free 30-day trial of MailRoute. You go to mailroute.net slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. Listeners of this show get 10% off for the lifetime of their account. MailRoute is going to protect you from spam and viruses. That's all they do. These are email nerds. Trust them with your email. They do it better. They've been doing it longer than anybody in the business. So please go to mailroute.net slash diffs. Our thanks to MailRoute for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Do you have any follow-up for this uh, for this episode? I, you saw I just have one little remark, really. Uh, we got uh, hmm. got Star Wars. You got uh, The Walking Dead. You got uh, drugs. My wife noted that I never got to tell my Muni story in the last show because I introduced it to them. We uh, wandered off into another topic. Okay, well, I... that's a good short subject. You got a Muni story, and um, I think there was a story I didn't finish also, but it's difficult to believe given how much I said last week yeah no but i the muni story doesn't fit now it's one of those spur of the moment asides but if it's as a standalone piece it does not uh does not stand up to scrutiny so i'm going to pa- skip it but i was just saying that in passing as a, as a follow-up item what was what was your thing oh no i mean you know i did <laughs> ecstasy <clears throat> several times and uh it's, I mean, it's a shame that i left it out uh because i really enjoyed it i can i i can highly recommend the ecstasy it's a lot of fun and i got a lot accomplished with ecstasy it was it was pretty great the problem was at my school, people were doing so much ecstasy that they, for example, became ripe as test subjects to get a spinal tap and make sure that it wasn't kind of destroying their brainstem or something. But uh, no, I enjoyed ecstasy. People asked, and uh, I, I enjoyed the ecstasy. Okay, so just to follow up here, um, first of all, um, I don't know what to say. It was a very, very long episode. It, I... I I guess we we could talk about the mechanics of like how, whether, when we should have episodes be long or break them up or whatever. I mean, I figure you're in or you're out. You know, you're in or you're out. It's it's going to be long, but like, how do you break that into two pieces? They're not all going to be three hours and twenty minutes long. Is what I'm trying to say to you. Yeah, no, I thought it was fine. Like you gotta have one of those every once in a while. It's, it's like the you know gotta have war every once in a while. The, yeah, go to, the go, go to the mattresses. Yeah, yeah. And this is every two-week show, so like, if it's too long, listen to half of one week and half of the next week. I feel like it's not breaking the bank, but whatever. Well, that's why, that's why I had a back and forth and had a little cranky back and forth with that one fella who was like, respect your listener's time and break it into two episodes. And I, my, my, my immediate response was, why don't you respect my time and just listen to it when it suits you? No, you don't have to respect that way. Like, it, it, is, it is an asynchronous medium. It is not a synchronous thing. It's not like when we talk, you have to listen. It exists. You can listen to it. Never. Yeah. In, in parts, you can pull a Merlin and start in the middle, like whatever. Like uh, it is, we, we do not dictate how you must listen to this or whether you must listen to it. Sometimes there'll be a long episode. Uh, I don't know. I think it's fine, like especially if you don't make a habit of it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I also got into a little bit of. Uh, I mean, I was avoiding having this become a big discussion because it's something I think about a lot. But in, on, on Slack, we were talking about things like Mike was very gingerly and sweetly. Mike, uh, who is the the one of the two big real AFM guys and who is the wonderful editor of this show, was saying, "Hey, you know, uh, 
How did he put it? So I'm like, you uh, want to put some uh, chapter markers in this one? And at first I thought he was basically just saying, oh, this one's really long. Let's make it a little easier on people. I think, you tell me if I'm right here, I think what he was really trying to say was, you guys, Merlin talked way too much about The Walking Dead and people might want to skip that. I don't know. I think when you have a long one, people may, might want to know what they're in for. I, I, I go either way on the chapter markers. I don't use them personally, but I can understand uh, how they are useful to people. So I have no objection to people adding them. Okay. Well, I mean, this is probably not the right forum for this, but what the heck. Um, here's my thing with chapter markers is that I'll tell you what. I think chapter markers work extremely well if you have a long like something like a twit kind of show. Like if you've got a show that's essentially about six news stories that may or may not appeal to somebody, I get that. And I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if it's a very long episode. Here's what made me realize I have very mixed feelings about chapter markers. There's a a program that I like to listen to called the Accidental Tech Podcast. And uh, uh, that's a show that has chapter markers. And here's the thing. That's one of my favorite podcasts. And I listen to I like I like your show so much. I listen to most of it live when you guys are doing it live, and then I often will like listen to it again when it comes out because I'm broken inside, and that's the kind of thing that I do. I really like Accidental Tech Podcast, and I like listening to the whole thing all the way through. And you know what? I actually kind of like not knowing what you're going to talk about next. But here's the thing: if I if I so having said all that, right? That was all honest things that I just said. But here's the reality: the reality is, if I open up um, Overcast. And I see chapter markers, I will almost always use them, which is completely irrational. It's antithetical to how I like to listen to shows. It's well, antith- it per- perfectly matches how you watch TV. Why do you have to make everything so ugly like this, John? It's not ugly. That's this is. You take this one tiny. It fits quirk. perfectly. No, you you see, you're buying into the premise, which is my premise. You're buying into the premise that watching TV that way is inane, right? This is not about podcast. I'm talking about podcasts. Right, but you need to, I feel like you need to own it. You need, oh to, you need to not start from the premise that it's bad and that what I bring up, that this matches how you watch television, you take it as an insult. You just say, yes, this matches how I watch television. Huh. And the well, way I watch television suits me. Oh, like, okay. yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to... Like, no, I'm just trying. You start from the premise that it's bad. I mm-hmm. think it's bad. But obviously, you don't. Obviously, it suits you. Uh-huh, and so... Uh-huh. You think it's hypocritical. Hypocritical of me. It, it, it makes sense that this would also suit you in the podcast world. But yeah, in the podcast world, I feel like you, you are coming to it uh, not just with the tv thing but like you already said like you feel i guess you feel better uh listening to it all the way through but you can't resist the temptation to to see what's uh, coming and jump to something right god you're john explaining this entire thing to me and you're skip shaming me you're on the wrong side of history john you're skip shaming me you're skip shaming you're 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 going you're trying to make me feel bad i've skipped a few th- you you would never say anything about my size how, how, how do you say things about my skipping that's just that's ugly old thinking on John Syracuse. I'm trying point. to tell you you need to take back the night. You need to, you need to take ownership. Have a candlelight vigil. Have your skipping ways. And, I'm not and be, that be much proud. of a skipper. You Don't you be, know we talk about it for fun, but I'm not that much of a skipper. I skip around. Let's sometimes I start a movie and I go, meh, I'm not into this, or I'm tired, or I want to watch something else. Sometimes I do that. I'll own that. But, you know, I mean, uh, with TV seasons, you know, you can jump in partway into the second or third season of a lot of shows and get most of the idea mostly. You can. (laughs) That's a thing you can do. Okay, setting aside all the ugliness of your opinions about this, do you understand what I'm trying to say, though? You, but so you, so you, you know, everything you just said, but then when the chapter mark is there, you use them and you feel bad about using them? Well, but the thing is, like, I don't even, it's not like I, I mean, I've got the time, I'm not a busy person, and I enjoy what I'm doing, 
it's just it's it's just that if they are there, I will use them. I'm being honest, and I think if other people were being honest, they would probably say the same thing. Which is that so, like for example, like with something like uh, most of the programs I do these days, I would prefer that people listen to it or not listen to it. I mean, I don't want to give you an affordance that encourages you to jump over a part. If I give you a link four-fifths of the way into an episode of Roderick on the Line, if you're somebody who really likes Roderick on the Line, if you're one of the six people that really likes that show, I'm doing you a disservice because it's going to make even less sense than usual if we try to jump you you know, 80% into the show because you see a section about the Beatles. Because it's not about the Beatles, it's about the discussion. And like for a show, for the shows that I really enjoy, it's less about the content and more about the back and forth. And so I have these two warring parts of my brain. There's the one part of my brain, which is the, the index, the topic index catalog for all of my own interests and not interests. So like, yeah, if I see there's going to be 42 minutes of talking about cars, like, yeah, I, I sometimes I skip that where I ordinarily wouldn't because I, I still enjoy it when I listen to it. But this this uh, kind of left brain part of me goes, oh, you should just uh, skip to the part where they talk about John's toaster or whatever. So I, I know that it's it's a it's an attractive nuisance for me to have uh, chapter markers in the shows that I listen to. And so I'm reluctant. I know that this sounds self-involved, but I'm reluctant to offer it to other people because it's really saying to them, you can skip to any of these parts and get the equivalent amount of enjoyment. And there was not any cumulative effect to this. If we gave somebody the last 20 minutes of last week's show, I mean, I know that's an extreme example, but like that's a cumulative, that's the organic chem of, of podcasts. By the time you get to the end of that, you better have studied up all along or you're not going to have any idea what's going on. Yeah, you don't have to convince me. Like I always listen straight through. Like I said, I don't, I don't touch the chapter markers at all on any podcast. I just start playing them, and then you know, and then they finish. Right, that's it. Um, but I know there are people out there who like the chapter markers. So I guess it all depends on like, uh, are you, you know, if you're trying to make a statement uh, of intent with with your thing. Because it's not even like you know, oh, we're deciding for the listeners what you know what is useful. You know, like well, just because you don't use chapter marks, maybe someone else really appreciates them. But it does send a signal about. Uh, you know, how it's intended to be consumed. Kind of like when you put uh, numbers on episodes on a television show yeah. to imply the sequential viewing nature. It's kind of like numbers or numerals? Just numbers. You mm-hmm. know, episode one, episode two, episode three. Oh, okay. And then, okay, so, and then if you wanted, so like episode two of like, uh, of like season four, even though that's episode two, you'd still watch that after episode one of like season two. Yeah, yeah, it's a very complicated system. So okay. two, two level hierarchy. Two yeah. level, two level call, hierarchy. Call them series. And uh, John, is that kind of bubble in, sort? In is that is that a bubble sort? <laughs> oh, series, the series and the seasons. Just, series and seasons. It bothers me. Um, yeah. So I think it's perfectly fine. You know, like I said, I, I I like chapter markers. I I don't I don't find them an attractive nuisance. So it it didn't really occur to me that by putting them there we could be entrapping people or sending a signal that we think it's okay to skip from place to place. I understand the spoiler nature of it again, which is why I never even bother looking at them. See that in, I approve of that. I, I, I approve of that. I, I'm like, I, I, the thing is, on this show, we don't have a, a plan. We don't have a program. We don't have. We have some topics that might come up, but I mean, like, like you care, but like, there's no plan for like when we're going to talk about what. And like, I think any show, like, or any discussion, it should go where it's going to go. I mean, frankly, I, I can't get super interested in a show that hews too tightly to an outline. That's a different kind of podcast. To me, it's like, okay, do you put chapter markers on the TV show 60 Minutes? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Because these are actually three different segments plus whatever that fourth part is that used to be Andy Rooney. That makes complete sense. But like an improv show, like if you go to see a Herald, would you ever give somebody a chapter marker to like the end of the Herald? Like that doesn't make any sense. 
there's also the fun metagame of deciding what uh, becomes a chapter and naming them. Like, could you resist putting a chapter marker on the consistency of your cat's poop? Like, maybe that would be a chapter marker just for just for funsies. And you wouldn't put one on like the major topics, so you can have this whole second level game that you can play with them. You kid, you kid! But I spent when I sent you and Mike that list of potential chapter markers. That took me two hours. I know it's tough. It's tough to know where the th- like, especially there is no set thing. To, so for anyway, I'm 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 generally in favor of chapter markers, but if you don't want them on the show, I'm fine with that too. Yeah, we're just happy you listen. So, uh, but you know, we did get some nice uh, remarks about the last episode, which made me feel good. I felt a little bit vulnerable about the last episode, so I'm glad uh, some people seem to like it. It was good. Yeah. No, no complaints except for a couple of the people about the length. So I was surprised about that too. You know what else I found out? A lot of people don't like smoking. Were you aware of that? I didn't. I'm not getting a lot of uh, feedback to me about that. Maybe they're yelling at you because they know you're. Well, uh, I don't get much feedback about anything. But like what I, I saw, at least three people who were like, "Thank you, John, for saying that." I'm really glad somebody said that about smoking. People are just annoyed by people who smoke because they smell bad. <laughs> that's yeah. the main. That's the main sort of. I was not. Just, that was not a topic of discussion. But like a lot of the boy smokers really annoy me, especially now that smokers have been chased out of all forms of civilized society, society and, are, and are forced <laughs> to like hunch in the rain with the, with the garbage and the gutter. Uh, that yeah, and you know, they gather around the the entrances to buildings, and they have this widening perimeter for how you're not allowed to be near the entrance to the building. You <laughs> right, know, right, just, right. Yeah, we um, my daughter and I went to see Captain America on Saturday, and my wife offered to come pick us up, and we're like, hey, great, that's awesome. So come pick us up at the bookstore across the street. And uh, my wife walked in, and I kind of went to greet her over like by the YA section, and we both looked at each other at the same time and made this face like, hmm. I can't actually see you, you know. Yeah, you know, you know what the face looks like. There we go. Mm. The Yoda face? <laughs> Backpack I am. No, we were both like, Do you smell smoke? And you're like, yeah, I smell smoke. Like, oh, somebody in here smokes. And it was such a strange experience because that's what, what the world used to smell like. But we both independently were able to go like, ooh, somebody in here smokes. It was really, <laughs> it was a strange experience because that's what my entire childhood, every square inch of my childhood smelled like that. Yeah, or even like in in the modern era when you go somewhere with the smoking and you, you know whatever, uh, and you come back home and you don't realize that everything you're wearing and your hair smells like smoke, and you just need to like go all uh, what is it, silkwood? Oh yeah, silkwood shower. 70s. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the correct seventies reference for this. You you have a pretty good sense of smell, don't you? I don't know. I maybe? I, bet, I bet you feel like you do. I got a big nose. Come on. I don't think it's related. You know what Lincoln said? Your nose just has to be long enough to reach the floor. You look great. Yeah. My grandfather lost his sense of smell early in, early in life, which I think is a sign of uh, of eventually you're going to get Parkinson's, and he did, so I'm watching for that, but so far, so good. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a blessing and a curse, mostly a curse, to be able to smell really well. Yeah. You, can't, you can't turn it off, you know? Well, yeah, I can tell you everybody who I work with who smokes. I think everybody can. My buddy Harry in uh, in college was like a wizard. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a dumb. That sounds like a dumb joke, and I didn't mean it that way. His name was actually Harry. He was not actually a wizard. He was from Gainesville. Um, but but Harry had the craziest sense of smell. Or like stuff like he knew. He's like, were you in my room today? <laughs> well, you could have been really stinky. I mean, it well, like college. everybody in New College used to leave the doors unlocked. And if you're right. pals, you know, you would have like a running deal. Like he would let me borrow his 12-string guitar. Like anytime I wanted, just take care of it and bring it back. He's like, were you in my room this afternoon? And I was like, uh, yeah, I borrowed your guitar for like half an hour. He's like, yeah, I thought so. It's hot and humid and you didn't wear deodorant. 
dude, he could smell that I and I wasn't I wasn't a particularly stinky person. Mm-hmm. I didn't I don't think I don't think I have a particular Are you are you writing on a curve? I don't know what she looked like. <laughs> I did have we actually actually a mutual girlfriend, Harry and I. Um I I did know a woman in college who she was like spider woman. She had a, a smell that would just drive people crazy. At first, I thought it was white rain. Did, did she have one of those diffusers? <laughs> just walks. Where's that plugged in exactly? Your, your wind song stays <laughs> on my mind since we're in the, still in the seventies. Shantu, Shantu. Yeah, but everybody agreed. We talked about it. All of our exes, we would talk about. It. I was like, "Well, man, what is up with what is up with?" Well, the was it? You think it was artificial? No, no, it was. It? it was God's way of saying this is fecundity. Uh, <laughs> it was God's way of saying there's something. There was some kind of a like. Like, not too sweet, but a lilting, flowery, what must have been a pheromone smell to this woman that, and I'm not particularly sensitive to, to like, sexy smell people, but there was something (laughs) about the way this woman just cleanly scrubbed, naturally smelled, that was absolutely intoxicating, empirically intoxicating, and everyone said so. It's the the erotic parfum again. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That was a hell of a story, wasn't it? You get little, you know, you are the ultimate layers of the onion friend of mine. But I'll tell you, Roderick's got some stories in him. Mm. Yeah. We're, we're talking here about a time that John smelled a man walking by and decided and he that he, he yeah. followed him because he decided he wanted to have sex with him. Mm-hmm. Am I reading too much into it? Or that's pretty much what he said, right? No. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Because it's par- parfum. Like so many of his stories, it just trails off after that. <laughs> And in any case, <laughs> oh, anyway, thank you everyone for uh, listening. And we've now made it. Uh, what, what is that? Was it the not the silver anniversary? We're twenty six now. Yeah, twenty twenty fifth podcast anniversary is what that txt file. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. It's yeah. a uh, let's see, twenty six. Do you ever say first anniversary? What Does that bother you? you? Does it bother like- you? Like uh, your first wedding oh, anniversary, sorry, sorry. Let, let me go back. for a year. Does it bother you when people say first annual? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, it makes sense. It like it communicates the idea that this is a recurring event and this is the first occurrence. Okay, that surprises me. That seems like something that would bother you. No, it's like like I said, I've said many times. Like a lot of the things that you know, the rationality thing versus uh, like, oh, what about phrases that don't make any sense if you choose different, if you look at the individual words and define them separately and then put them together and it sounds weird. But the whole point of words is to communicate ideas uh and i'm not i'm not actually trying to to like be silly or pin you to the wall here it just seems like that is that is that is a phrase that could be ambiguous in an unnecessary way first annual is is fine uh first anniversary uh also i think is fine because in both those cases for people who are you know versed in the language first annual means this is the first time we're doing this and it happened and we're going to do it every year yeah right first anniversary means there was an event and, and it was one year ago today Okay. Right? Well, yeah. yeah. No. No. Okay. Here, here's a, here's another fun one that that uh, that people on Twitter like to uh, yell at me about, but that I will defend forever. How can something be very unique? See, the unique or it's not unique, right? That's that the, is very frustrating to me. The silly logical thing. Well, it everybody knows what you mean when you say very unique. It successfully communicates the idea. Mm, to pretty you're being, much. You're being you're being glib, but like so, speaking of smoking, like you know, who is the most virulent? anti-smoker is somebody who stops smoking somebody who knows how damaging it can be somebody who knows how difficult it can be so that's why um and of course i think i've been one of the big contributors to making literally things like literally and turns out a meta joke you know kind of to my chagrin but 
But you know, unique is such a great word. And I come at it as an ex-smoker because I used to be somebody who would say, oh, that's kind of unique. And now I hear that and it's really frustrating to me because unique is a, spe- is a special yeah, word. Yeah, but don't you think very unique communicates extra information that unique by itself does not? I don't know. I feel like unique is one of my special words that I, I like to try. I like to, I, I don't always do this. And this is why I struggle and roll my eyes is I like the, I like, it's one of those, there's so many words that, you know, people like me, like idiots like me will say things like that's totally awesome. Like I talk like a 12 year old girl, but there's something wonderful about being able to say this person's situation was unique. How you choose to communicate is one thing, but I'm not, I'm not, po- criti- I don't, I'm not criticizing or policing. But not, not so much policing, but just saying, like, if you use that phrase, you will fail to communicate. That's, I feel like it's the only way right. you, can, you can tell someone that what they're saying, that their speech is not successful. Uh, and in the case of Very Unique, it will totally be successful. It may not be something that you choose to do, which is why you can make the choice for yourself, and that's fine. Right. But I don't think you can condemn the phrase uh, as, as a functioning piece of language, that you should not use this phrase... Because, because why? Like, well, that's because the, for the same yeah. reason, no, no. Here, okay, so one of the, the, the secondary or tertiary problem or, or dumb part is that there's already a word for what you're trying to say. But there isn't, there isn't a word for very unique. What they mean is unusual. No, what they mean is that, that, uh, that it, you know, unique just means distinct from the other things, right? Very unique, unique means... Unique means there's only one of these things. Right, and very unique means not only is there only one of these things, but it is extremely different from the set of other things, which uh, are also all unique. Nah, that's not, what, that's not what people mean. That's totally what people mean. It's like if you have the numbers 1, 3, 5, 7, and 20 million, 20 million is very unique in that set, even though they're all unique. See what I'm saying? I do see what, I do see what you're saying, but I don't think that's what most people mean. I think when most people say she was, a, she was really unique, they mean that she was an unusual person. Right, but but, but you're saying you, that's not what that's not what right because everybody's unique, that. right? Except for twins, and even them, because of the nature nurture thing, probably also still unique. Uh, but <laughs> adding right, it to the topics list, you're gonna say you're gonna say for very and it's a lot of it's hyperbole. Like, oh, she was very unique or whatever. But that's yeah. what they're trying to communicate. Not only was this person was this item or thing or whatever distinct from the other set of things, but the, the distance and whatever along whatever axes we're trying to discuss in this, the the implied context of the differences was huge it wasn't just like this slight variations and this one stands out on the graph and that could also be hyperbole it may not be that they actually do stand out on the graph in any measure but what you're communicating is that not only was this thing distinct different from all the others but it was different in a way that it stood out from the pack much more so than the slight variations that separate the others that's what that's what's being communicated by very unique i i I agree that that's what that should mean that incorrect use of that should mean but it's not I'm dis- incorrect that's mm. it's a it's an idiom and, and people that's everyone not what understands people what you mean mm, no i disagree i disagree but part of it also no so my main reason for it my main beef is that i have special secret fetish words there's certain kinds of words that i have overused in the past but i've learned to to love and nurture and protect not not as a as a grammar nazi but as somebody who there's certain words that are very delicate and special that i try not to use too much and when i use them i want them to people to be able to drink in the specialness of them so like you know a word like sublime or elegant or unique are are like are kind of my like my special words and so that's why it grinds me a little bit when you say like this is a totally elegant solution well no it's not it's just a thing you did over the weekend it's not elegant or sublime the way that the way that solidarity solidarity says sublime in uh, Amadeus, you get the idea. You get the idea of the word when he makes that facial expression. and goes, you know, sublime. 
you really get what that word's mean, word means, which is more than just like it was a pleasant enough Chardonnay. That's all. Is I'm just trying to keep my powder dry a little bit. As somebody who has been uh, uniquely hyperbolic over the years, I'm just trying to find a way to like keep as I as I age out of the hyperbole demographic. I'm just trying to reclaim some of these words for myself to keep them a little bit special. That, that makes sense for choosing how you communicate, because especially when you're in your you have a body of work, whether it's spoken or written or whatever. Part of your communication is the reasonable expectation that the people you're talking to have heard other things that you've said. And so there's a context for everything that you say. The context is what they know of you and how you communicate. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so... And I can quiz them on it. I could just say, look, let's be honest. How familiar are you? Somebody I meet at the school, like when I'm picking up my daughter. How familiar are you with my body of work? Well, the, but, but that's why... No, I'm just saying like when you write something or have a podcast. But that's why you choose right. a different communication style for people who you know don't really know anything about you. Um and you'll probably use more exclamation points, verbal or otherwise, uh, with those people than with other people. But yeah, that, like this totally makes sense for a personal style of communication. But the, I, I think you still have to draw the line at uh, condemnation of of the, of structures that, uh, that most give, of the rest of the world uses to communicate. I'm going to give you a half straw man. You get a half straw man on this one because I'm not exactly saying that. I know I, I, you're saying just for yourself, but it still bothers you when other people say it. But but it's really like it, you know. Well, it, I don't want you to lose your virginity at the at the port authority. Like you know, I'm trying to say like there's something special to this, and like you don't want to blow that out with these words. And but, then you know, they just people don't might have their own favorite uh, special words that are different than yours. Fair enough. And those could be more boring words. Like anyway, I, I I'm I'm a pretty staunch defender of uh, whatever silly constructions and language come to be commonly understood. Once it passes a th- certain threshold, there's no more arguing against it from the perspective of historic definitions, logic, or even uh, special words are keeping your powder dry. At a certain point, it passes uh, beyond that for the masses, and every individual can choose however they want to communicate. I, yeah, I, li- I like that about style. you. I like that about you. Oh, so last question. Uh, can you answer this in, the, in a minute? Why do programmers start counting from zero? Uh, because you're doing offsets from an address, and the first item starts at the, with no offset, like at the beginning of the list. Like if you, if you think of like a position, like a, people on a line or whatever, mm-hmm. um, the first person, his toes are touching like the end of the line. How far from the end of the line is that person? He's zero. Zero feet, zero inches, zero whatever. Like that is the zeroth item. One is the second person in line. Okay, thank you. Um, that's did, not actually the answer. This is actually really good art. I was just trying to. But give you give it to me in a late, minute. That's what I asked you for. I was trying to give you the fast one, but you should actually Google for like why do array start at zero? This whole big crazy history. Some good articles about it on the web. And uh, you know what I keep meaning to get that I never got. I should get that. Uh, didn't Stephen Frank do a book about How this to kind count. of stuff? Yeah. Is that? I just, is that, I just, put, him, right? I just surreptitiously put that on my son's new iPad the other day, just hoping he'll run across it on his own and, and read it. Do you recommend it? Uh, I've only read small parts of it, but like. It starts with real basics and fundamentals, and it's the type of thing, so many of these things, like the type of thing, boy, I wish I had encountered that when I was a kid, because I just remember being bewildered by so many yes. of, these, of these concepts, because even the most introductory text didn't was not introductory enough for me. I'm like, no, go, take it back a little farther. No, keep coming back. And, <laughs> right, and right, right, I right. couldn't communicate that to the library books, but I would either they would just be these silly glosses over the topic for like, you're a kid and you don't understand anything. Computers beep boop. And they would tell me nothing. <laughs> or it would be like, I assume you already know certain basics that you don't know and start from there. And then I wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of it. Like the, the programming manual that came with Microsoft basic just assumed so much knowledge I did not have. And I really wish there was something like, uh, how to count or something at that level. So I just, you know, but I can't 
present it to my son and tell him to read it, but if I just throw it on his iPad, maybe he'll find it one day. Maybe he'll tap yeah, on that, it. That's, that's me. That's me and PlayStation. Uh, honestly. But yeah. Yeah, I was talking to uh, one of the other moms uh, yesterday at Pickup about, you know, just the whole, be- you know, our kind of bewilderment initially with the sort of math the kids are doing, but the, just the seemingly clear evidence that even at the age of eight, there are, I'm not saying my kid's a genius because she's not. She's fine. She does okay. She's like, not like crazy smart, but she does okay. But like, there are some things where she seems to be able to estimate things much more quickly, definitely than I could at her age. And in some ways now, I mean, like I'm, I'm okay fast at estimating things now, but like, I don't think that's how I was ever wired. I don't think I was ever set up to understand sets, I guess, or counting, if you like, in the same way that she is. And it's, it's really revolutionary to see how different it is making these people. Yeah, I, I think it, I wonder how I would have done. I was never, I never really got math. I think it's kind of the same thing that I, my brain rebelled against the idea of following a series of rules by rote, which is exactly what we were taught in terms of here's how you do long division yeah, yeah, and 100%. Mem- memorize the multiplication tables and subtraction or whatever. Uh, and I wonder because like the the more conceptual uh, foundational stuff, I think I would have eaten that up and it would have helped me really understand things that I didn't understand until much later because. I was smart enough to do the rote steps reasonably well, but it was not fostering a true understanding. So it was, then it was like, every time I presented with a new concept, I better really bear down and memorize those rote steps. Otherwise, I have nothing to hang my hat on. Yeah, and then when it's time to get into even like Algebra 2, it almost feels like, in retrospect, it almost feels like, well, you know all that stuff we made you memorize that you got really good at memorizing by rote? Like, that's going to be helpful to you now, but really we also now need you to kind of start over and learn this a different way. And it sounds like the way they're teaching now is more, is meant to dovetail with where they're eventually going to go, rather than saying like, okay, we need you at this, at this level of skill by the fifth grade. Now, it's a, it's a different kind of level because it's taking you to a different place, I hope. Yeah, and that's why, I, I mean, I'm a visual person, so obviously geometry was always my favorite math subject. Really? Um, oh, yeah. No, who doesn't but that's geometry? a lot of, but that's not a, uh, I geometry, geometry was so obvious, like it just laid down in front of me like like math people say that the numbers do. You know people who talk about numbers and they just see them combining in their head that it's just like, it's at, it's like having them do a shape sorter. It's so, it's so simple to them, like the basics mm-hmm. of, of numbers and stuff. Well, that's how geometry is to me in terms of like I didn't even like I didn't have to pay attention for all of like the geometric proofs or whatever. I just had to learn the notation enough to be like, well, I would just look at the thing and know what you know. It's obvious uh, what that angle is in there from from staring at the thing, um, and that's why I think calculus. Uh, like even though it's supposed to be getting harder for people because there was a graphical like it was taught in a graphical way in terms of you know area under the curve and changing slope and stuff like that that there was a conceptual underpinning that had, was graphical in nature that I could hang my hat on, and then that really helped me understand the rules, which otherwise would seem very Byzantine for people using. I, I learned arithmetic and algebra, but calculus seems crazy. It's like, well, but here is this picture to help you understand what's going on, and once you start visualizing things in terms of the picture, a lot of stuff makes way more sense, I feel like. Um, and then you keep going, and then eventually I got into math where there was no pictures anymore, and I just lost track of it. So. <laughs> right. But yeah, now everyone learns in different ways, but I feel like the... Uh, I see the new math thing and I totally, I'm pretty much totally on board with it because I wish I had been taught that way. And I see the deeper understanding that is, that it's fostering. You can still fall down in terms of like, all right, well, are you actually conveying that understanding or to someone who, or is this understanding only obvious to someone who already knows it? Like, cause at this point I already know it. And then I look at it and I'm like, oh yes, this really is teaching you the things. But then I try to quiz my kids about, 
It's the same thing. Like you see them do things that you would never approach it in that way. And you're like, this child must be a genius, but it's really, they're, you know, they're just learning the things they were taught in school. Yeah. But I mean, it's also very humbling because I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example or an analogy, but it's almost like I'm this, you know, I'm the like eighth generation of farmer who has always used a hand trowel because that's just how we've always done it. And my kids, you know, trying to put together a garden and I'm sitting there going, no, use the trowel, use the trowel. <laughs> they drive by in a giant combine. Wonk, <laughs> that's how it feels. All right. Thank you. I will check out Stephen's book. I've edited it to show notes. I am very interested. I moved an idea from last week up to the top in this one. I don't want to force it on you, but I'm extremely interested in the topic at the top. Yeah. I. All right. So, I mean, I, I would have, had we not gone for three hours last week, <laughs> I would have gotten more into that. But I, yeah, this is, it's a short one for me, I think. And and okay. your your extension of it, I think, is uh, slightly different than where I'm going. But I maybe yeah. I've already talked about this and you can stop me. If you've heard well, no, well, you know, wherever it's going, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. But so basically, it came up in the last, what, 10% of the last episode? It came toward the yeah. very end. If, it, if there were chapter markers, you could go to the part <laughs> in the last episode, episode 25, where you were starting to talk about, I, I was provoking you at length, trying to get something out of you. I mean, apart from the fact that you're obviously a libidinal horn dog, trying to get something out of you to talk about like when you had like pushed the boundaries. And it was that what got you to talk about considering the parameters of the world? Yeah, well, it was, it was the thought experiments to like freak yourself out. Yeah. Uh, what, what there's nothing instead of something. Um, and the, yeah, the parameters of the world thing I alluded to, that was, it was uh, my special project to use your, your phrasing. It's kind of a shame that we had lots of good titles for that one because my special project really was. But anyway, my, one of my special projects through my childhood. In fact, pretty much the abiding memory of, like, what was driving me through my childhood, aside from, like, uh, candy and television, <laughs> um, uh, was the need to know the parameters uh, of the world. Because when you're a kid, uh, you don't know anything, and there's a lot of information out there, and uh, adults and the world and media lie to you, in ways that are obviously lies to some adults, but some, not always. Uh, and a lot of it was really interesting to me, but I had to figure out which of the stuff is real and which of the stuff is BS, right? So let's start with something simple like Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. If you're a kid of the uh, mid to late 70s uh, or early 80s, Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot were a thing on a lot of the television that you were able to watch on network television in search of all that other business eventually ripley's believed or not stuff like that I, I, would, I would dare say i mean i'm trying to think of an equivalent but almost the way that you would hear about a kardashian today it's it's hard to describe how much bigfoot and loch ness monster and ufos and ufos but i mean all of the paranormal stuff when i mean it it didn't come up like it wasn't the pet rock it didn't come up once and was hot for three months mm -hmm. through my entire childhood like Sasquatch was always there. Loch Ness Monster was always there. So I don't know if it was Time Life books. I don't know if it was Leonard Nimoy. But like all I can tell you is there was a drumbeat. You described it from the mid from about the you think of like the time of Chariot of the Gods, whenever that was, whenever that came out. But all through the mid to late seventies, and yes, as you say, into the early eighties, um, like basically like a fairly grown up thread existed about the the existence of paranormal things things that we could not either know about or prove but we very much needed to consider it, and it just kept coming up again and again in, in popular media media everywhere and then reports like would be on the news about seeing a bigfoot yeah. it was a thing that just was on all the time it kind of i'm trying to like 
backsolve and think why that might have been. It kind of might have been. It was like the reality of TV of the day and that you didn't have to pay scriptwriters quite as much. Like you could you could cheaply make media that would get lots of viewers. Like there's no sets. There's no actors. Like it seems like you could. That's why you could keep doing it. You, the same reason they keep making reality shows. Like once they figured yeah. out that formula, the production budgets are relatively small and the viewership compared to that is relatively good. And so just, yeah, just keep making those UFO shows. Keep making the Bigfoot shows. Keep making the Loch Ness shows. Uh, and so if you're a kid in this world, obviously those things sounds awesome. Loch Ness Monster, boy, that would be amazing if there's this weird dinosaur-like sea creature in this place in Scotland or whatever. And then Bigfoot, he's in the woods in various places, and we got footprints, and we got blurry pictures, and the UFOs. Oh, he's got that like, video they, that everybody saw. I mean, that video seemed incontrovertible. They would reshow the same the same video clips a million times in a half an hour program. Slowed down over and over. Have you ever seen it, um, uh, what's the phrase, motion adjusted? Yeah, yep. I mean, have you, I mean, it's... The steady can yeah, like steady. It's, it's hilarious, is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it does not look quite as realistic when you see that. Yeah, so that, like, and those those shows were presented, yep, yeah, as entertainment, right? But like you said, they would also show up on the news. Uh, the story there was that someone had spotted something, not so much the thing was real. Um, but you also knew, because you were a kid watching these programs, that a lot of the programs had adult, non-actors testifying earnestly to their experiences that these adults were convinced especially of, for the ufo know. stuff this that, oh, that yeah, was no. just everywhere right they're they're convinced that they saw what they saw they're convinced that they experienced and so you're a kid in this world a very young kid at what you know what, what kind of tools do you have to determine whether these things are true? And, and again honestly as a kid you want these things to be real because they're awesome right who wouldn't want aliens and ufos to be real and loch ness and bigfoot like you desperately want them to, and here are adults, I guess, authority figures. Uh, so at least some adults are buying this, and of course there are the skeptics. And it's like, but it, but it's like a mystery, and it was frustrating to me. It's like, come on, human race, let's let's figure out if there's a Loch Ness monster because it sounds awesome, and I really want there to be one. Um, similarly, figuring out the parameters of the world as I got a little bit older, learned about. <laughs> You know how where where does electricity come from? How do we generate our electricity? Um, where does our water come from? Where does our garbage go to? All sorts of things like that. Sort of the energy problem. Uh, nuclear weapons. You have to know about them because they could potentially end the world. Um, and nuclear fusion. Um, you had to learn about that. Like where could we possibly get energy from? Solar fusion stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then. Uh, the computer angle computers were becoming a big thing lots of stuff about like in the future you know computers will do x computers will do y robots computers stuff like that seeing star wars seeing what those robots are like what's the deal with that how far along are we at getting hal 9000 or r2d2 or c3po or flying cars from blade runner this is what i needed to know for my entire childhood was there's lots of information out there a lot of it seems really cool where what where are the limits of all of that and i pretty much spent most of my childhood in just until discovering girls when that became a different special project um trying to figure that out library books television shows watching you know uh, increasingly sophisticated programs on pbs to try to get to the bottom of this to try to find where all the limits are and it's not like i was discovering new things i'm just a dumb kid right all i'm trying to do is get to the limits of current adult understanding and what i you know eventually came to understand was current scientific understanding like what do we know you know first the first thing which i told my kids a few times it never really sinks in maybe i'll just have it chiseled on my tombstone when i leave them but but it's like uh 
how do you tell whether things are true? How do you tell if things are true? Right. The question I ask my kids all the time, and they have no freaking answer, even though I tell them it's the same answer. How, how, how do I tell whether things are true? It seems like such an essential tool in life when you're a kid. You're like, there's lots of information. People tell me lots of things. How do I tell what's true or not? It's, it's a really important thing to ha- to make some because if you don't have that you just end up watching television show after television show and you just come to sort of believe what you want to believe or what you come to believe from you know like what is your tool how do you tell well it, lar- what, you know? it largely comes down to taste and style right i mean like you you if you're not thinking about that on some level it's mostly going to be like you judge credibility by like whether you liked it whether you agree with it or whether it seems credible given how it was produced. Well, if you don't think about it at all, this process happens, but you have no awareness of the process. You you will come mm. to conclusions, but you will not be aware that there is a process by which you see, like you it would just be a, it's dark it's a black box. The input goes in, answer comes out. Uh, you may feel very strongly about that answer, but you have no idea what's in the black box because you never thought about the black box. You don't even think there's a black box. It's just like you know that's 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 one way to operate, sort of intuitively, like where. You're not picking apart the process or whatever, but you know, I, I was faced with all this information. I wanted to know what the limits were because mostly because I really wanted there to be artificial intelligence like HAL 9000, flying cars, Loch Ness monster, lightsabers, the Force, magic, magic shows like magicians. As a kid, I wanted to know: uh, is is magic real, mm-hmm. or are they tricks? If they're tricks, how are they done? Some of these things can't can't possibly be tricks because they're amazing. Um, is magic a real thing? Like, are any magicians really making things disappear? Because, again, if the shows that they would have on television, a lot of them had that angle where the shows were really pressing hard on the actual mystical, magical nature of these magicians. Not that they're amazing right. performers creating illusions, but that, that, you know, okay, we all know these are tricks, but maybe some aspect of this trick, you know, some certain, you know, like they were just lean. And again, you're just a kid. You don't know. And so I was desperately looking for how do you tell whether things are true? The eventual answer I came to was this thing called the scientific method. And the people who practice that are called scientists. And it's the best tool we have for determining whether things are true. In fact, the only tool we have for determining whether things are true. Uh, and if you apply that to these various problem domains, you eventually get answers and you can keep pressing against the boundaries of those because sometimes your answers are wrong because later people using the same scientific method show that you didn't have the full picture and you need to learn about the history of science and eventually you find the, the, the borders of all that stuff. And I felt like that process of finding the parameters of the world and eventually fencing things off as here's how far we've gone until someone breaks down that gate and goes farther and goes farther and goes farther, even just like elementary particle stuff. Like here's all the particles we know about. During my lifetime, people have been busting down those gates, finding new things, and they have ideas. I think there's going to be a particle like this. Well, prove it. Uh, all right, wait. Fast forward 15 years, big, huge, uh, dig a huge tunnel in the ground, uh, send, spend a couple billion dollars. So, yeah, that idea that people had 20 years ago, uh, we have some evidence for that now. Um, and all, all the other scientific discoveries. And it's not as if these walls are, like, impenetrable. That's the whole endeavor of science is to bring right. down those walls. But you eventually get to, uh, no, magicians are performers. Uh, they're magic tricks, uh, and it's amazing in a very different level, but eventually you learn, you know, that they're not actually magic. Uh, it's a magic trick. They, uh, they that's are, that's the thing performers. is like when I, when I just, when I've gone out on my own and sometimes I just get in a fit of peak, I will go and research. We, I think we talked about this in a very early episode going out and researching how Penn and Teller did that effect. And it's so funny because I, I feel like, uh, I feel like Ralphie in like a Christmas story or something. Cause I'm, I, I, I get to the end of the article and I go, Oh, it was a magic trick. 
Like, it was a magic trick. Like, there was a performance. There was a trick. They cheated. <laughs> that wasn't actually magic at all. Wow. Uh, one, 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 one note on what you're saying, though, now that I've got a minute to think about it and remembering what it was actually like at the time. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, you thought this way, but I mean, you know, at least the way I grew up, there was a sense that I don't, I mean, I don't want to make my family sound like regressive or ignorant or something, but I think there, at least for a long time, people were raised to believe that there was a, a greater than majority chance that if something was in the newspaper, it was true. That it was it was true and accurate. That basically, for something to be in the newspaper or to be on TV, and I'm not saying I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say America's just all rubes, but I think there was a natural credibility given to things like stuff that was on TV. Obviously, if it was Walter Cronkite, it's got some credibility to people. That's kind of how that worked. That's one thought. The other bigger thought, in some ways, though, is the way all of that stuff was presented. I'm now remembering it wasn't presented as this like this curiosity. It was presented more as what do you call it? a mystery it was you know it was you know, like those dumb headlines that end with a like a question mark it was like but back then it would be like this is the mystery of this you know haunted inn like of course nobody really believes inns are haunted but we do not have a way to explain this do you remember yeah, do you remember that, yeah, that they, style they were, all the shows that was another frustrating thing all the shows were to, to the show super faithful about we're gonna end and say in the end could go either way, right, guys? You're never gonna know. And the you know the the, the more slocky ones would end on like the spooky thing that leans more towards yes, totally, this Loch Ness monster. All right, they would never have a program, and at the end of it, say, and thus we have conclusively proved that the Loch Ness monster is real or not real. No, never. All of them. It was all about the mystery. And but they would, they would, but just in fairness, though, they they would also <laughs> not fairness. They would also be able to say, "Hey, look, people have tried to debunk this many times before. We've hired this person to go mm-hmm, recreate these mm-hmm. conditions, and this person cannot conclusively say that this is not possible." Yeah, no, they totally wanted to keep it alive because if you don't keep it alive, you can't do more specials about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right? So, like, and and really, really, I mean, it's just. From the lowest level, which I feel like is the whole Santa Claus thing, where you're a kid and and Easter Bunny, like and Tooth Fairy, kids, <laughs> your parents, your biggest authority figures will tell you lies that that will they will eventually reveal, and you will feel foolish for them about you know oh you know like eventually you leave behind those childish things. But uh, as you again you see from the adults who totally believe the, that that uh, the Loch Ness monster is real, they're abducted by UFOs or whatever. Um, and so you I get one of the things I was sussing out as a kid as well is in terms of like what are the parameters of the world? There's a lot of humans on the planet. Uh, what do they believe percentage wise? How many of them believe there is such a thing as magic? Um, uh, how many of them believe in Loch Ness monsters and UFOs and, th- and things that like you as a kid eventually he determined? All right, I see what the deal is with Loch Ness monster now. I get it. Okay, got it. Um, and but there are some people you know how many people really truly believe in the Loch Ness Monster well maybe not who cares about Loch Ness Monster then if you go more broad like how many people believe there are you know dinosaurs somewhere on the earth that we just haven't discovered yet like just like trying to get an idea of all right I've figured out what the you know scientific the parameters of uh, of human knowledge are right and then what are the parameters of humans knowledge like in you know us as a as a species not like the limits of what we've discovered uh, scientifically, but just like if you took all the people in a room and everyone raised your hand who believes that UFOs have visited the Earth, uh, believes it with all your heart, uh, how many hands go up? Like that type of thing. Because I think that's another important thing to know is let's get a let's get a lay of the land situation here. And that's what made it more difficult is because if you are 
like me coming up in this world, you realize you are eventually discarding things that most people believe. Uh, and right. because you're using a different system, a different system to determine how do you decide uh, what's true? How do you determine uh, whether things are true or not? And you but, realize you're using a different tool than everybody else. And you also realize things like scientists who, uh, you know, believe in uh, UFOs or Santa Claus or whatever you want to be. And it's like you learn about compartmentalization and all these other things. And like uh, it, it was this is pretty much how I occupied uh, myself during my childhood, racing to the edges of things and very often being disappointed, particularly about computers. I was so excited about AI and I read everything I could about AI. And then I learned how far we had come and how little we understand about how even our own brains work. And I was like, oh man, we're so far away. And it kind of took the wind out of my sails in a lot of subject areas because I felt like, well, never mind against about that. Wake me up again in 150 years, right? Whereas other things like, you know, uh, personal computer interfaces, that seemed like a thing where we were, uh, where there was still plenty of progress to be made. And like, we weren't, in fact, we were closer than I thought we were. It wasn't just like, oh, well, we're not going to have cool interfaces for, and like 1984 came, I was like, wow, that was such a huge leap forward. That could happen in any field, of course. But uh, in the areas where I didn't see a limit, like fusion, I was really excited about fusion power until I found out how crappy we are at, at reaching break-even fusion. I'm like, oh, that's going to be forever. Here we are now. We're still working on that. Big payoff if we get there, mm -hmm. but it was kind of good for me to set that down in 1981 and say, all right, I'm going to put that on the back shelf for a while. I keep my eye on it, but that's not going to be the thing that uh, that occupies my attention. Uh, for the, for the, I'm not, I'm not going to put my career into a, a you know, break-even fusion. I'll just uh, uh, enjoy the Mr. Fusion jokes in Back to the Future and then uh, continue to go on my merry <laughs> way. Um. And, and I, I can't say that this was top of mind for me, but it's definitely something I think about today. And I wonder if this was something you thought about too. I mean, when, when, so you're talking about things like, uh, is Bigfoot real? Is there such a thing as a Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest? Is Nessie really a thing? Have aliens been here? And how would we know? I think there's another shoe to drop in this part though. That's, it seems obvious, but I want to tease it out, which is, you know, all of those things you're describing that we're describing that first of all, they were, all were real. You have to understand this is this is a generation of people that had gone from people in your family just die because of diseases to we've literally we've sent people to the moon and back like that suddenly the world of possibilities the age you're talking age that you're talking about early eighties all the talk about computers and interferon and there's all this discussion about like we're on the cusp of something like impossible happening but the thing I want to tease out is uh, that that I, I do still think about and I think I used to think about especially with regard to like ontology what I would now call ontology or, you know, philosophy, religion, origins of things is like, okay, so is Nessie real? Is Sasquatch real? All of those kinds of things, these silly questions. Well, that there's that one question, but the thing is, regardless of what or whether you believe a, a given thing or, you know, what you believe and, and why. So what is the implication of that being true? Do you know what I mean? So that, to me, that's, that's where you get into the crazy interesting stuff when you're doing little thought games and mind speculation. Because, you know, you could say to somebody like, do you think Nixon's a good president? And they could have an opinion, yes, no, or I don't care, or I don't have an opinion. But like that, now the thing becomes like, okay, so what do you do differently now as a result of believing that? And so in the case of, and this sounds silly, but, you know, if, is, is, uh, is Sasquatch real? Like does the, the footage that we've all seen, is that a real Sasquatch in the PNW? Uh, and somebody might say, yes. You say, okay, well then what do you think that, what does that mean? What does that mean for like what we know about stuff? And what does that mean for how you conduct your life? You could go to a level we don't need to go to, but like, do you believe 
that God, as we think of God, is the creator of the universe and has an ongoing role in how we think about things like, you know, uh, justness and kindness and salvation, however you want to think about the many facets of God. It's one thing to say, I don't have a strong opinion that God doesn't exist. And it's another thing to say, I do believe God exists. What does that mean to you? That, that to me is where it also gets even more, I might, might be jumping ahead, but when you say does Nessie exist, well, that opens up a whole new can of worms. Like, first of all, if you believe the Loch Ness Monster is real, oh my God, like there's so much stuff we should be doing that we're not doing right now. Well, might, most people who believe would say, "No, no, no, we don't. We don't need to disturb Nessie." Like, I, I think, I think the the way I think about these things, and if people are hearing it, they'd be like, "How do you know if there's no Loch Ness monster?" Like, that's not the point. The point of the, the, what the parameters of the world that I was discovering is: why do people believe in the Loch Ness monster? How how is the how did the idea of the Loch Ness monster come to be? How is it endured? Why do people find it compelling and attractive? That's what you have to understand about these. That's when you're discovering the parameters of the world. It's not like I'm discovering whether Bigfoot is real. What I'm discovering is why the story of Bigfoot exists, why there's television programs about it, why people watch it, and why they have the opinions they have. Because once you understand how it works, like how the pieces all fit together, right? I mean, it's, this is exactly like how do you determine whether things are true? How do you, about anything, right? Once that sort of lays down in front of you, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense why people believe in Loch Ness Monster. That makes perfect sense. Like, you learn how people work. You learn how the world works. You learn how stories work. You learn about history. Like, that's what's happening in this parameters of the world. But does, uh, does it also go for stuff that you would tend to think is likely true? Like, so the examples you're all citing are the kind of things that most uh, skeptics would scoff at. But, for example, did you ever find yourself saying, why, how or why do people believe we went to the moon and back? Yeah, or even like did you, did you give the same amount of, of, right, of right, well, skepticism to that? Right, or even like uh, the ether or uh, other ideas in Newtonian mechanics, or like things that, that previously were at the the, four, the 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 you know the parameters of the world were defined oh, like, like by these bod- things. bodily humors or something right. like that. But eventually, and like, why did people believe those? What were they basing their things on? And if you go back far enough, they were basing it on on bogus crap. Like they didn't, you know, they did not have a good foundation. But once the scientific mission, the method comes in, you get the age of enlightenment. They came to lots of, of conclusions that were later shown to be wrong by the same scientific method, but nevertheless represented the parameters of the world, which, if, again, you have to understand history, that lets you understand that whatever the current ideas are, those aren't the end-all, be-all. That's just the current state. And the people, you know, the, 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 the bodily humors may have been before the, the scientific method, but, you know, uh, like, you know, Newtonian mechanics... Or, or the you know the the idea of you know the the ideas behind electromagnetic radiation when we didn't really have the tools to understand it people had some ideas and they could be supported by some things but then people did other experiments like no your your idea makes no sense in light of this new you know double slit experiment and they'd be like huh that is weird <laughs> you know and we just kept to come up with new ideas right so understanding how you know, like why did people believe those things because the method the process they were using scientific method supported it. Uh, until it didn't anymore it's a different you know then you have to say what system are people using to to think about the loch ness monster or Mm -hmm. magic tricks or i'm speaking to my dead relatives remember the big the big craze about like the whole like speaking to the dead through mediums and stuff uh in each of those cases you have to look at the system they're using to determine truth and see how the system they're using would lead them to lead them to believe that something is true uh, and understanding different people's systems and systems that are that are sticky, that are pervasive throughout human history, different cultures and everything. Like, what, our Loch Ness Monster is no different than 
a million other stories you can trace back to the be- you know the beginning of the written world and everything like that's that's what i was discovering and then once you once you have that it, it, those topics become less interesting. They become more interesting in terms of if you're interested why people believe the things they believe, but they become mm-hmm. less interesting. In that. And, and in the same way, it becomes much <laughs> less interesting to try to like debunk uh, moon landing denialists, right? Because you understand, like you can eventually come to understand where they're coming from, mm-hmm. how they came to these conclusions. And once you understand it, like I feel like you're fine with it. It's like, I see the system you used, stupid system, but it's your system. And that's what you're, and I can, I can understand how your life has led you to this decision, but I have no desire to argue with you about it because we're on totally different pages and we would have to start back so many levels back. Like that's, that's when I think about it. occasionally people annoy me with, with, like online where, you know, someone is wrong on the internet type of thing. I think about exactly how far back I would have to go to begin a conversation about how wrong they are. Like it would have to be right. like, it would have to be, so, it would be, you know, it would be but, but again, not just, in, not just in terms of, of taste or preference, but in terms of like, this is something that has been, you're talking about something as if it's still a matter of debate that's been empirically shown to be a certain way. No, but like I, I would take them take like you're the system you're using to determine whether things are true what is wrong with that system and why and how many okay. other people have made the same mistakes and then you mm-hmm. have to work your way forward once you once you break you got to break them all the way down to you know how to count <laughs> and then because you can't just go right into like i'm going to tell you about the moon landing because it's just a general disagreement about how do you tell whether things are true like if you if you don't have agreement on, on, I, I wish i could phrase this better i don't have a good phrase for it in my head it works out as more of a shape as an, than a phrase but like how do you tell whether things are true uh, and people have crap answers to that <laughs> question, but if you don't, if you're not a, in agreement on that, you can't debate the moon landing with somebody. Like it just, it just doesn't work. You have to go all, and so that's why it's not. It, 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 what I felt like in my childhood was closing off areas uh, of where, like where was I going to put my life into? Where was I going to invest my my time and my interest and everything like that? And it, I would just slowly close the door on areas as they became explicable to me, and but, as but, as the the most fantastical explanations that were most attractive to me as a kid got closed off. I'm like, oh man, you know, again, strong AI that would be awesome. But then once you see where we are, you're like, all right, close that. So door. it also, but it also had. I'm probably repeating what you're saying, but it also had the effect of allowing you to develop your own filter for what um, was worthy of the kind of scrutiny and parameter determining that you were interested in. So like, you, like in the same way that you wouldn't want to go argue, you know, go wrestle with a pig about the moon landing. Um, it sounds like it, it helped you determine like some kind of a, a filtering, like at a high level, like what you say, pattern matching, but like some kind of filtering that would allow you to say, you know, this is the kind of thing that I need to be examining for how it fits into this. And these are the kinds of things that like, or was that the idea itself? Yeah, I, I think history comes into it a lot, even though I know so little history compared to so many other people. But like another important thing was learning about the learning about uncertainty, that there was there was almost no certainty. All you could ever do was use the best system and the best information you have. And if you just look back in history, certainty is pointless. Like there's, there's no you know that that's the thing that the moon landing people never want to hear because they want you to be certain they so desperately want to be certain about something so many people do want to be certain about something and <laughs> that the big lesson of all this stuff is like you know how, you know how do i tell the things are true how do, how do i know what resources i lean on or whatever one of the most important resources is a lot of people who lived before you and uh for a while we've been writing stuff down and a lot of similar things have happened in the past can you use them because people and people are pretty good at pattern matching can you look at history uh, and 
get some kind of idea of the lay of the land in terms of what things were people really certain about that turned out not to be true. Um, is there, a, you know, is is there a pattern there that you can learn from and apply to a particular new scenario? It's just like, you know, you just, everything is, is percentages and best information available. And we could all be in a, a giant hologram or the whole world could be a dream or blah, blah, blah. Like all those things are all out there in the mix. Uh, and that uncertainty is uncomfortable with a lot of people. So a lot of times you can't have that conversation either because people it's, really... It's, it's, it's anathema to some people. So yeah. they, you know, one reason I'm attracted... I'm not saying like 538 is perfect or anything, but one reason I'm attracted to the kind of stuff that they, that they do... I'm, I'm very interested in this idea of saying, like, so, so what you're describing is like historically you would say to somebody, hey, you're an expert in this topic. Um, what percentage... Let's, well, it could be a coin toss. It could be an election. But whatever it is you say to somebody... Um, give me a percent, your percentage estimate. And you can even say plus or minus. Give me your percentage estimate that the following event is going to happen, right? And so, I mean, historically, you would say to somebody like, the, the, "Well, the simple answer is it is either going to happen or it's not going to happen." The more slightly more the, the more nuanced way is to say, "Well, like I feel like there is a seventy five percent chance that this thing is going to happen." And then what makes that super interesting is if you say to them, "Okay, now how how sure are you?" That that's going to happen, which is kind of a different question. I'm seventy. I'm. My, I think there's a seventy-five percent chance that this is going to happen, and I have a twenty-five percent level of confidence that my estimate is correct. That get that introduces a whole whole other vector to this. You know what I mean? So if you say, I mean, obviously, like you could say with a coin toss, I have a fifty percent chance. I have a fifty percent. Um, I've guessed that a fifty percent guess that this is what's going to happen as an outcome. But I also have a fifty percent certainty that my prediction is correct. But adding that vector to it really changes it because it forces you to say that there's, I mean, how many zeros and ones are really out there? I mean, obviously, there's truth in everything else in some people's minds. But like, you know, to be able to say, like, if there are things where we're talking speculatively about things, like, what is your, given the evidence that you've got, you know what I mean? How do you, how do you derive like an estimate about how good your own estimate is? Yeah, the 538 stuff is a good lesson in for most people. It's like when 538 first started coming out or things like that. Again, people want certainty, and people are excited by, well, these guys are using the smarty smarts to get correct answers. It's just uh, like Moneyball. They got it all figured yeah, out. Go to find they're, <laughs> they're my new gods. But that's not how they think of it at all. Like, in terms of when 538 gets things wrong, the obvious next step, obvious to 538, but, like, damning from, the, from a different perspective is the job then is to find out how did we get this wrong? Just like any other, you know, basic scientific endeavor. You have a hypothesis, you test it. If all evidence supports it, that's the best we've got to go on. If eventually something else, uh, you know, contradicts it, like it's at all levels, you're like, if you if you mess something up, you have to understand why and how you messed it up or you're going to mess it up again. And so whenever 530 gets something wrong, what they're trying to do, hopefully, is figure out why they got it wrong. And then in the process of figuring out why they got it wrong, maybe you're wrong about figuring it out. Like it just goes around and around. Like the whole idea is that there's all you can ever do is the best you can do all you can ever do is the is use the only tool that has ever been proven to make net progress in humans understanding of the world uh and use that tool the best you can and the tool users are imperfect and biased and terrible and sometimes you got to wait for them to die for someone to have a new idea like it's you know all that's inherent in and that's like i i love hearing when people try to throw that back in the face of like you know, uh, scientific people are like, well, scientists are biased and they lie for selfish reasons and have affairs and are stubborn. And it's like, yep, they're people like, but that, that doesn't like, this is the best we've got. Scientific method is it. Right. Uh, and if, it, if, you know, if the practitioners do not faithfully carry out the, the system, of course that's going to happen. 
Uh, but what is your alternative? Well, it's also it's also that kind of like relatively classic black and white thinking, you know, of, of the all or nothing kind of borderline personality disorder. Because they want because they want certainty, and they're like, well, if 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 scientists don't have certainty, if I can't trust scientists, then who can I trust? The answer is no. Well, one. it's 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 basically the internet collectively saying, "What about you, Dad?" You yeah. know, it's you know, it's it's. But you know, it's it, I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like you know lionize uh, Nate Silver, but I it's there's a reason that's the only political podcast that I listen to is I enjoy hearing them every week talking about these crazy primaries and him. I think he's been pretty straight up about saying, you know what, I got Trump. I really underestimated what was happening with Trump, and then watching his kind of soul searching about trying to figure out like where did I accidentally put my dick in the sample? And it's to me that that process is very interesting, and it doesn't make it any less useful because the whole point, the whole effing point all along was this is about estimation and guessing guessing and measuring based on the best information that we have but listen these are polls <laughs> these are there's the entire process is incredibly flawed but that doesn't mean we should either be counter wowed by it but that we should like examine what it is that we're doing try to get better at it and the more that we measure the right things at the right times and then are circumspect about learning what we got wrong like we can evolve and get better at this and half of listening to that show at least when i'm listening to something like that is i'm listening and my what my brain is crunching on is trying to figure out what it is about nate silver the fallible human that has led to the you know the 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 the, the misprediction right because mm-hmm. you know and he's he's trying to figure out the same thing like we all are like you know because we all again we are imperfect vessels here attempting to execute on a plan and we are our own worst enemies and we have our own weird biases and our own little monkey brains and all sorts of other stuff going on in there uh and you're trying to like trying to figure out where it th- was uh, uh, very often you know the people trying to figure out about themselves, like they're going to be blind to their own thing. So when I'm listening to a lot of reason I listen to a lot of things is I'm trying to figure out humans because humans are, you know, trying to figure out humans are one of the most interesting sort of, you know, interesting problem domains because they are the most interesting living creature on the planet. Like they're, they're, you know, we can relate to them because we are humans and they're really complicated. And as a parent, another special project, like trying to figure out another human being that you are somewhat you feel somewhat responsible for shaping in some way like it is it's one of the most interesting greatest puzzles like that any like prosaic puzzles that like the average person will be faced with is is parenthood and and other and figuring out other people and so a lot of, i find a lot of the entertainment i watch like the not non-fiction stuff um i'm watching it because I'm trying to suss out the people. And you're hoping by sussing out the people, you're revealing th- more things about yourself and blah, blah, blah. Because we aren't uh, machines. We can't execute on the, what we think is the best plan uh, flawlessly. And so it's just this giant metagame of like, how are the how are the vessels of execution screwing up the plan? And can we learn things about that? And in attempting to learn things, in my attempting to learn how Nate Silver screwed this up, how are my screwed up leading me to conclude unflattering things about Nate Silver because of my messed up hangups and nothing to do yes. with Nate Silver. Like, it just goes around and around. But I, I find that endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Not, not like I would be a psychology major or anything like that, but, like, I feel like, in the end, all these things that we've been talking about, that's what it comes down to. Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, scientific method, history, war, famine. Like, it all just comes down to, if you keep going down and down and down, the practitioners of all of this, if you go back to like the aliens observing the human race, comes down to these little humans and why are they doing what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is where we talk about free will. I don't know. We could, I'll put that in a topic for another show. Well, I've been scared. I've been kind of scared of that one. You should be. 
Um, but you know, there's also this. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a there's a couple things that that I'm, I'm I've been very attracted. to. I'm looking at the site right now um, called Your Logical Fallacy Is, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a pretty terrific introduction to logical fallacies. That and and like you said, I mean, like I can't even begin to paraphrase you, but you, like you said, just because you know about fallacies doesn't necessarily make you any you know better at it. But like I'm I'm trying. I really am trying. And it, I it helps. It's it's a uh, it's better than not knowing. Well, I mean, if there's one thing that it doesn't hurt to be skeptical of, it's your own abilities to think. And so at least having that in mind and learning to doubt or like to question these little things, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting there with, with baby steps, hopefully, maybe, uh, another great thing I'll, I'll put in notes, a show note, uh, a show called you are not so smart, which is a really good, uh, podcast that's actually on a, on a run right now, just talking about logical fallacies, but you know, it's what you're describing though, is whether you're talking about Nate Silver or you're talking about, I feel like there's this kind of, um, intellectual, philosophical, civic NASCAR thing going on where, um, where you're kind of just waiting, waiting for whatever proof one needs. And this is, again, somewhat getting back to black and white thinking. But this idea is like, all I need to do is find one chink in the armor and I can just toss out this entire argument. Is, is like that ability to find, like if there's one thing where like I feel like there's a credibility concern with this person, you know, whatever it is that I can find, like that's all I'm going to need to toss this out, which is so like <laughs> this gets me to my favorite new fallacy. Are you familiar with the fallacy fallacy? <laughs> that that uh, if you can find a, uh, a, a flaw in the logic, uh, that, that if some some statement seems to potentially com- uh, fit the parameters of a, a fallacy listed on a fallacy page and the whole thing is obviously wrong. Yeah, pretty much. The fallacy fallacy. This is again I've, from I'd never heard of that, but that was my guess. It's pretty good. Yeah, and that's really good. Lo- your logical fallacy is is the name.com is the site. The fallacy fallacy. You presume that because a claim has been poorly argued or a fallacy has been made, that mm-hmm. the claim itself must be wrong. I think there's another one in the list of fallacies besides that one. But yeah, but like the, the whole idea is it's kind of like medical student's disease, where once you know so much about it, the human body, you, you think everything is going wrong. Once you know a bunch of fallacies, like all you can do with every argument is like you're just like, it's like pulling from the patterns book and programming. It's like, oh, I see fallacy <laughs> X, Y, it's like that that is a tool in your tool belt. But if, it's, if it becomes the only tool, you are no longer thinking and you're just being a silly pattern matching monkey and uh like <laughs> just pulling from your i have a lot of fallacies in my pocket all right you get one from column a one from column c one from column d and it's like okay now what do we do with that like I, you know this like like patterns and programming like these are all tools in your tool belt to help you figure out things but in, in the end i i, I feel more and more and i, I feel this with like, the movies the tv shows i watch uh even in fiction where you're like you're you're suspending disbelief and you're trying to pretend these are real people and understand how they work or or sometimes even in fiction what i'm what i find myself doing is trying to get into the mind of the writer and being impressed by the mind of the writer and how they have so uh so well simulated the essence of my experience of other people you know what i mean like that's what I, that's what I would, how i would describe yeah. good writing where they're not, for the most part, like people really are. It's not like cinema verite or no, like, but it's you know, like, like, but it's kind of emotional economy. We're able to, to like distill a big idea into something to, where you can instantly recognize, you know, what it is they're talking about, right? And and like, but they're like they're able to use this shorthand to capture a, a nuance of of humanity that is more sophisticated than uh, or more interesting or complicated than the the simple like you know the the sort of fairy tale type things and then that sometimes i think about how the writer was able to do that and i'm pulling myself out of just appreciating the thing but anyway like figuring out other people especially since 
And for me, figuring out other people in the abstract is so much easier than <laughs> dealing with actual real people. You know what I mean? Like it's again, if you can if you can pull yourself out of a move and say, I am just an alien looking down through a magnifying glass at all those silly humans running around. Uh that is it's much easier to figure out what those humans are doing that way as you get closer and closer to them and they become like important people to you who you actually know who you have an interaction with who your actions and and demeanor and everything have like then it gets much harder to to figure stuff out so the ultimate remove is fictional people who aren't even real and the second remove is like history learning about people long dead and everything like that um that's what i find myself doing in a lot of my entertainment because i am at a remove and i do find it comforting i guess uh, or easier or you know certainly less fraught than trying yeah, to less do the fraught. same i mean there's less movies. there's less baggage um associated with trying to like uh to figure that out so let's get back to the parameters of the world though so i think i'm getting a better idea of what you're talking about um and so about what age if you can remember about what age were you when this became something you were aware you were thinking about a lot that's this is my my oldest and longest memories of childhood are were just like books like paper books and encyclopedias and time life books and library books to figure and and television programs to figure all this stuff out um and mostly uh growing up being a series of disappointments that the thing that was the most attractive to me turns out not to be the thing you know that I would have been really excited if magic was real because I wanted to move things with my mind something awful. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to move things with my mind for a long time, it seemed like. <laughs> you and you and John Roderick. Oh, man. I, I so wanted that to be a thing. Um, turns out. But it's one of those things where, like, I mean, like, the, like, I mean, just put yourself back into the mind of being, like, a young person. Like, for me, that was flight. There was this part of me, and I know that sounds crazy, but th- there was this, and, and I, but I also very much felt, magical is not the right word for it, but, you know, for example, like, why is it that one kid is able to climb that tree on the first try and 12 other kids couldn't like what did that person have there's something about what that person has why does this person find biology so easy those are like kind of silly examples but all the way down to like why is it that some people get to walk on the moon but there was this part of me that was like this this seems like if i found out that there was a way to that that people could move things very even very slightly or could affect the physical world with their mind it would not completely surprise me just like there's a part of me that always thought, like, it really seems like we should be able to fly just a little bit. <laughs> Mostly because I wanted it so much. Yeah, no, you want it so much. And it's, it's presented to you as, it, like, again, if, you, if magicians are in play, if you're a five-year-old and magicians are in play as they're potentially magic, you're like, all right, moving things with your mind is right up there. Like, that's, that's exactly in line with everything you know and seen about the world. And so you're just really like, if this is the thing I want in, I want in on that. <laughs> and so it just like seriously it's i tried to move things with my mind a lot i tried to figure out or, or psychic stuff and here, here's the, the one but like, really like, like for, did you ever sit there with like a deck of cards and like with all of, i mean like that's you know, a leading question but i've done this I, I would sit there there was a time when i was in about when i was about 13 14 i was trying to do stuff with self-hypnosis and i, I had this idea <laughs> I had this idea that like with a certain amount of, cause I knew I was a pretty smart kid and with a certain amount of mental training, 
it was ju- it was currently just out of my grasp. It would be like trying to dunk a basketball. You know what I mean? Like I, I really felt like with enough training, I would be able to do these mind things just as much as with enough training, I might be able to eventually dunk a basketball. It seemed a, a, about that outlandish to me, like, which is to say not completely outlandish. I, I worked pretty hard on trying to be able to dunk. Never made it. Never made it there. I get. Uh, I do not have the height. But like, the, you remember the special shoes you could wear to try to make your calves stronger? Oh, right. right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it was, it was like 6'2". It seemed like... You know, I'd seen Spud Webb. I'm like, eh, I, there's a chance someday if I work really hard. Because, like, uh, dunking basketball was a thing that was real. People could do it. People who are shorter than me But, I mean, I'm, me I'm, I'm just it. trying to say it's and not the same It's not the same thing as time travel or right. tearing, well, what, uh, tearing what, a phone book in half with your hands. What I'm going to say is, like, I, I put a lot of work into trying to, to dunk in terms of funny shoes and exercises and practice, 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 and I'd hoop in my house. I feel like I put more work into trying to move things with my mind. Obviously, years and wow. years earlier, I spent work, but I feel like... Talk about special project. Boy, I I so wanted that to be true, and I worked really hard at it, and in the end, it didn't go anywhere. And here, here's the thing that really kills me, is the the one thing that I sort of came out of that with, like, the, the one fairly surprising thing was that the whole, the whole idea of a photographic memory, it's not quite what the, you know, the phrase and the idea makes it sound like, but there are actually people who have fairly amazing abilities of recall, and... That is not too far from moving things with your mind as far as I was concerned. And I spent a lot of my time as a kid thinking about... Obviously, I, I learned that it was not really a thing you could acquire, although there are systems of memory to help you memorize things, and I was interested in them for the purposes of being lazier at school and other things like that, right? But there are certain people who just have amazing recall, and you can just ask them what's the seventh word on page 28 of a book you read last week, and they would tell you that that is pretty much indistinguishable from most of the other magic things in terms of how far it was from my personal experience of the world that like yeah. you know i spent a lot of time watching uh nova uh programs about people with various mental uh abnormalities in terms of their brains didn't work like other people or maybe they'd had a surgery to try to correct there was, something there was the one there was like else. the one th- there's the one thing on pbs and i want to say in 1984 that introduced everyone i knew including me to the idea of what 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 then was called autism and those demonstrations of that one guy upon whom Dustin Hoffman's character was based, and watching what that guy could do, so, who seemed so you know in, you know um, disabled mentally in many ways, but his ability to basically tell you what the weather was any day ever, right? I mean, the thing is, however that guy is, or however he, whatever quote condition he has, that guy could do it. He's got the same basic wetware as me, and he could do that. And I had a little bit of a photographic memory. I I was able to when I was younger. Um, I was able to tell you, for example, like, I don't know what page this was on, but I can tell you, I remember what song was playing. And I remember that it's in the second to the last paragraph on a left page. You know what I mean? So not exactly photographic memory, but cobbling that stuff together, you would go like, there must be something more I can do with this. Yeah, it's like sense memory. And that's why I felt like it always felt like it was within grasp. Because you're like, well, I don't have that, but I have something that sometimes feels like that. And again, it gets into the whole arm and bucket of ice water type thing of like trying to figure out how brains work and how the various malfunctions in these people's brains leading to these these abnormalities lead to abilities. But like the photographic memory thing, like if it, it was, you know, if I could pick one special mental gift I could have probably in my childhood, I would pick this, maybe now I'd pick something different. But for the purposes of being lazy at school, photographic memory was it, man. Like, especially if you if you go with the the uh, 
the common pop culture understanding of it, even though it's not quite how it is. As in, like, right, where, where, you, you, where you get a heads up display and get to pick exactly yeah, what exactly. it is. Exactly, yeah. it's, it's just you get a VHS tape of any of any time in your past life, and you can just watch it. And it's not it's not any more magic anymore than it would be if someone had videotaped that book and you had just played the video and fast forward to the page and you just read the words off the page. And it is no more interesting to you than I mean, obviously, this is not entirely how it works, right? But you can see the results in terms of again, like I think someone with similar, uh, uh, you know, autistic type problems, like they'd fly him in a helicopter over a city, and then they'd put him in a room with a giant white piece of paper, and over the course of the next week, he would draw every single building and every single window, and, and like all the, uh, you know, the entire city that he just uh, driven by, as if he's looking at it uh, the whole time. Anyway, that seemed like a superpower to me, and part understanding how moving things with your mind, not a thing. Photographic memory, like kind of a thing actually not quite what you think it is but there, there, there's a concept that we call photographic memory that's definitely a thing but right. it's maybe not photographs and it's probably not precisely memory there's, right there, but there's some kind of a connection that is a little bit special it's just not you know it's not the same as like regurgitating vcr like what you read in something and, and there's usually trade-offs and other situations lots of things with the guy who had the two hemispheres of his brain separated and how that if you only saw something with his left eye uh, he couldn't tell you what the hell it was because his vocal system was you know the, the voice centers of his brain it wasn't connected up and he'd be like you'd give him a roll of tape and he'd be like i know what this is yeah i'm looking right at it uh i've seen this my whole life the, the, like uh, all, Oliver, it, Oliver Sacks kind of yeah stuff. you can use it to connect things uh but and then you can uncover the other guy other on he goes a roll of tape <laughs> and you just learn, start to learn how the, you know, the basic rudiments of us, like, you know, either messing with our own brains or uh, brains that formed in different ways, teaching us how our own brains work and just seeing how the pieces of the machine go together and mm-hmm. revealing what is potentially possible with the raw materials if mixed up in different uh, different formulas. And so it was kind of weird to come out of that it was as just a series of disappointments of growing up. I think by the time I was in middle school, I had I had like hit all the limits that i was interested in the things that that intrigued me and one of the things that kind of poked out was uh no you can't move things with your mind but the brain the brain as one of those things is like we understand so little of it that it's very difficult to understand what the parameters are like are it's just a big giant cloud it's like it's like our understanding of medicine in the days before the germ theory of disease right it's like well we kind of all know how our bodies work kind of but it seems pretty complicated, guys, right? And, you know, today, like, as I just saw my son was taking a biology notebook. I remember first doing biology in school um, and uh, and thinking as we went through all the things, like, just just appreciating all the people who came before and figure all that stuff out because it's like, man, <laughs> living things are really complicated. I'm glad these people figure all this stuff out because it seems like an awful lot of work. And even in biology class, you know, or whatever, you learn, you know, in high school biology, they stop short of, like, yeah, but yeah, but eventually the yeah, buts run out. It's like, I'm sorry, we, you know, that's not in this class or actually we don't even know how that works. Right. And never mind with the whole physics where you get into gravity and all that stuff like that. Like it was, it was fun to see where those limits were, but it was definitely disappointing to learn that I couldn't move things with my mind that are use the force or uh, ride on a Loch Ness monster or anything like that. And so is this the, be- is this, does this end up being the beginning of John's age of rationality? I mean, I think it started from the very beginning because what I was trying to figure out was like, you know, what things are true in the world. And I very quickly landed on the the tool that would, you know, the the, the part of my brain, the style of thinking, the, the system that would lead me to be able to make any progress in this. Because for a while I flailed with the mind of a, you know, a kindergartner sort of just kind of going by 
hope and emotion and whatever like and it just you wouldn't make any progress you'd watch program after program with the Loch Ness Monster and they would all be inconclusive and you realize I'm, I'm not making headway here like the, <laughs> the, the the television is not going to tell me the time life books are just not going to tell me right they're just not going to and so I need I need something else here and uh pretty quickly landed on uh the, the whole rational approach and that you just go to a different section of the library that's what it comes down to eventually you end up not in the time life books <laughs> and like even encyclopedias or encyclopedias actually like the history because then you read history and you're like boy lots of people have done lots of things already that are very similar to things we're doing now or are related to things we're doing now um and even if these accounts are inaccurate uh once you read the 17th account of ancient peoples worshiping some physical object you start to notice a pattern right and you're like right. huh what's the deal with that that seems to be a pretty common recurring theme here. Uh, also, oppression of women. Anyway, like you, you learn lots of things. Um, so yeah, that's. I feel like that is my abiding memory of childhood: is seeking out the parameters of the world and and uh, slowly closing doors. Not as if there will be no further progress there. Not as if my mind is closed to those things. But as in as in, I start to see the time horizons. Right, I start to see where are we now, and where do I think it would really be really cool for us to be. Uh, and how long am I probably going to live? Uh, and then that's, you know, space travel is an interesting one because I couldn't really, I'm like, well, it's plausible we could go to Mars in my life. I would, I would say circa 1978, it still seemed to me like a very much doable in our lifetime thing. There was the, what was the Carl Sagan mission to Mars? The um, Viking? The, yeah, there was the Viking that had happened, but then there was also, there was the whole beginning of the space shuttle program. And oh, I yeah, like, we were alive during the space shuttle, so it was like, hey, we're making headway here, right, guys? Like, Apollo, great, we learned all about that, but we got this cool thing to go to the space shuttle. Like, that's the next step, right? We're on our but, way. But, I mean, it was, like, it was like an airport shuttle to the stars, and I, I remember, like, how, how quickly we went from, I remember, I feel like I remember being at my grandparents' house in whatever that was, the first time that they took a plane up with a space shuttle on it. And then it, it took off. And then, it, you know, it wasn't more than, what, two, three, four years before they were taken off on their own. And it was a huge deal. We have reusable crafts to, 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 to send into space. It was and a spaceship. Come back, it wasn't just a rocket. It was a it, spaceship. It's a spaceship that it goes into space and then it lands like a plane and you use it again. I mean, you'd have to be kind of a lunatic not to think this has got to be something that, that at least some people are doing. In ten to twenty years, yeah, and yet the whole SST stuff. Were you big on? I don't know how I'm into military, military aircraft and, and programs Is like that. that like but, the Concorde, uh, it was yeah. The Concorde was like one of the, one of the you know it was, it was our commercial example. But the whole idea with like space shuttle and that similar technologies, like soon we'll be able to fly anywhere in the world in like you know you fly across the United States in like thirty minutes because we could not just the Concorde, but like these things would go into like sort of where you know way up like eighty thousand, a hundred thousand feet. And go far supersonic, and that would be air travel of the future. Like, just sort of basic, steady progress along the lines we've seen. We have satellites, we go to the moon, we send probes to other planets, we get the space shuttle, we get the space station, eventually we got a colony on the moon, then we're going to Mars, and it was just a series of steps laid out when we were kids. It was just boom, 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 we're, we're going to knock them down. Especially since it was like, we choose to go to the moon, blah, 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 and it was like, how many years later? It's well, like, like well, you, go, you go from zero to the moon in, like, what, ten years? Right. N and nine it, years. Right, so it seemed like definitely within our time we're going to knock these things out but of course the, the realities of financing and public losing interest and a couple of ships blow up with people in them and like lots of other prosaic reasons but i mean that's one of the reasons i didn't totally close off this this space thing because i'm like well time horizon wise that's plausible 
I had to kind of start to close that door for my personal life once I realized I got motion sick. Same same reason I had to close <laughs> off the door on uh, me being a uh, jet fighter pilot, which is what I wanted to be. I did not have an orange flight suit like some other people. But mm-hmm. if I had access to an orange flight suit, I probably would have worn it. Uh, but yeah, uh, my eyes being terrible and getting terribly motion sick kind of closed that one for me personally. Mm-hmm. But But I was always interested in aviation and space travel because that looked like it was on a reasonable time horizon but it just got pretty well delayed and you know within the scope of any human life it's not it's only so much you can do like these bumps smooth out in in the course of history but you could have been around in the age of enlightenment and expected all sorts of advances in physics and you realize no we gotta wait for this weird austrian guy to be born it's gonna be a while sorry you're probably gonna die (laughs) before that uh so we should probably wrap soon ish but in terms of the evolution of your measuring the parameters, um, how did it mature and evolve? I mean, there must have been a point when you started to feel conf- more confident about how you were – sounds so silly, but like applying the scientific process to the, the matter in your life. There must have been a point where that started to feel more mature and became like something you were consciously applying. How did that evolve – from you know being something that you were sort of casting about in your in your early childhood into your teen years, like how did that evolve uh, through your adulthood? Oh, if it, I think it settled in by the time middle school came. I think it had settled in pretty well, and then it was just a matter of sort of getting the reins on that horse. Like the horse was there, it was in the the harness or whatever, uh, but sometimes you'd, you'd the reins would slip down, slip down, and you'd have to like do that thing from the westerns where you like crawl and like pick up you know they always go to like the front of the where the horse i don't know anything about horses but you got like in the westerns where they accidentally drop the reins or something they got to get them back to get control of the team again so they end up crawling on their on their stomach sort of where the galloping hoofs are of the horses and just grab the reins and get back up into the seat that happened a lot because you know (laughs) the bit horn dog and everything you know they got a lot of other things going on with girls yeah. in high school and so inter- 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 interfering with the pure signal yeah. right right but yeah but it was always there the horse the horse was always there and it's just a matter of grabbing the reins and it's it's so easy to lose that it's like you know what a maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever like it, it goes by the wayside pretty quickly if other things are all messed up um but it's been you know it's been kind of my my lifeline uh literally and figuratively to keep myself progressing and on a relatively even keel um and yeah, that's that's basically been the struggle, but there hasn't been any sort of swap of horses or any sort of, uh, I mean, I guess the longest term thing was the slow shedding of my fairly rigorous religious upbringing, which took a long time because it was tied up in family and all that other stuff, right? Right, yeah. Um, and, and sort of family and sort of just general respect for for authority and parents and stuff like that. I'd be like, well, I'm living with them. I'm going to do what they say to do and I'm going to do it. And like, it's just, it's a, a, a you know, it's a manifestation of, of respect and, and love and familiar familial obligation uh, that, I, you know, I was never like rebelling against it in any way because it was generally benign. But uh, it got left by the wayside uh, as a matter, of course, once I sort of separated from, uh, you know, went, went off to become my own person. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I feel like you've talked a little bit about your struggles, like a in particular, I guess, with your son, you've just given his age and, and getting older. Like, you know, it sounds like you feel an understandable um, disconnect in like wanting your kids to be as rational as you are. Maybe. I uh, mean, you rephrase that how you want. But I mean, how do you like, what do you hope for, wish for or demand from them in terms of how they measure these parameters? Well, 
or or acknowledge them. It's the you know the the, the basic problem of parenting is or the problem of any dealing with any any young person is like you know we feel like we're all people we've had these experiences. You would like to impart your wisdom, the wisdom, the things that you've learned. You'd like to you know tell your children, but of course, as we all know, having been children, uh, some things you just can't communicate in that way. You can't protect your child from making the mistakes that you made some mistakes they just have to make on their own or they have to make different mistakes or they're different people than you and like it's that whole endeavor is you know just so so difficult that to understand so very often i do see especially you know like when my kids do things that i recognize in myself that's what all parents do like it's the only model you have like you're looking for the thing like oh i finally i understand what they're experiencing because i think i experienced the same thing who knows if you're right but that's that's one of the tools we use as parents and then very often you're like you might not know it son or daughter but I have the actual, I can tell you what's really going on here and what the solution is. And they don't care, <laughs> can, don't want to hear Can I spoil this? Can I spoil this for you? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Let me, let me tell you how this turns out. Uh, but then, then I also think back to when adults said similar things to me and how little effect it had on how, uh, and how it very often made things worse. And it's like, you just, it's this puzzle. You're just trying to figure out. It's it's the you know it's time travel curse. Like if you go back in time, it's like I wait. I know I know how this turns out. You should find that guy and stop him because he will be bad later. Uh, and no one listens to you. They're like whatever, crazy old person, time traveler guy, go away. And it's just you're yeah, just you're you're you're, uh, you're Cassandra. Yeah, exactly, Cassandra. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of that going on, and then you just have to pull back from that. It's like that's not really your job. Like just lay off. Find you know rethink this because that's not how you go about it but very often i do want to give my kid little nuggets because i remember nuggets from my parents like every once in a while once every six and a half years one sentence gets through right and i feel like i'm going to use the sort of the the, you know spitty gate against the wall to see what sticks kind of thing like i'm going to throw a lot of things out there most of them are just (laughs) going to bounce off it's fine if one of them sneaks through i hope that i hope it's a a decent one so that's the general strategy i employ and the other one is like a lot it's very difficult for me not to, to look at my kids and feel like not only do I think I understand what you're going through, because in these aspects, I see a lot of myself in you. Uh, and genetically speaking, there's some truth to that, right? Uh, but I know I know what this evolves into, and I know how bad it can get. And like, I try to find some way to give you better tools to deal with it than I had or support you in ways that I was not supported or didn't feel like I was supported or figure out why I felt like I wasn't supported when I really was. And boy, parenting is, it's a hell of a, uh, you know, I don't know. I I always try to think of it as like the, the, the ultimate the ultimate challenge, the ultimate adventure. It sounds all hyperbolic and stupid parenty type things, but and maybe it's just me as an individual, but well, it seems you, like such I a I feel hard like problem. if you're if you're not thinking that, you're you're not <laughs> if you don't feel bad about how you're doing, you're not doing it right. Yeah, that's, there's that's that aspect, but then that's just, you know, the basic state of being a neurotic person. But but yeah, but about everything. Um, yeah. but I, I I feel it in in a way even more so than I felt it in like in terms of like relationships right because at least then it's more even whereas with kids it's it's uneven you feel like you bear the brunt of the responsibility it's not a it's not a fifty fifty two way street here uh, boy yeah so so that's and, and and I also have to understand what tools I had at that age and what is reasonable to expect them to have and how they might be different from me and just sort of just make mental notes of like you know because the only model i have I've, I've only experienced the growing up process of myself and i've only done it once right and so you have a very limited understanding you can read a lot about how other people went through things but that's why i think there is actually an advantage of uh 
having children that that have some that you know that your genetics contribute to gives you a little bit of a leg up in some ways it might be easier if you have no genetic like if you adopted or or something like that 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 maybe you can take a different tact but i i am thankful for the times that i see myself and my kids because i'm like oh i, I know this this is the unique system like i can <laughs> i can i can help. and then it's just a matter of figuring out all right you know that you think you know this how can you use that information to help your children? And the answer is almost never. Let me tell you how this ends, kids. Because, well, yeah, and it's almost like it's know. almost like you know you've been through this maze, uh, like you're you're a maze puzzle in the back of a magazine. Like you've you've gone through that in your life, and you maybe you haven't made it to the end yet, but you've made it pretty far along. But you know, there's there's no saying that they're going to go through the same maze in the same way, and that your advice is always going to be that useful. You're going to tear the maze page out of the magazine, and eat it, and you're gonna be like, oh, all right then. <laughs> 